Oh, gosh. Belching with Jim. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Pie Factory Podcast. Well, yes, we are indeed special because we are Pie Factory Podcast, and Pie Factory Podcast is special. Good way, bad way, I don't know. We're the Short Bus Podcast. Short Bus Podcast, and this is Short Bus Sean from Pie Factory Headquarters North. And this is Jumpin' Jimmy G from the Pie Factory Head or Logistics Center South. And it that that it's Jumpin' Jimmy. Hats off to Cab Calloway. Mm. The version I was singing was the Joe Jackson version, which I really love. Well, Heidi, Heidi, ho there, uh, Jimmy G. Um. Man, we, we really have a lot to talk about uh, for this episode, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we do. Oh, and I just crunched an ice cube. That we do. Okay, so crunching an ice cube. Um, I've, I've been doing that all day because uh, where I work, our office just moved uh, right, right, uh, right after Memorial Day. What? Did it just move like a couple of feet to the right? No, a couple of blocks, actually. It's just a couple blocks, of feet actually. to the left. Yeah, it was. And then a step I, to I just the wish right. I were there to see it move because it must have been quite a... Quite a weird thing to see an office go across downtown Chicago, but... Uh, well, if it was San Francisco, wouldn't that be kind of normal, though? It would be, it would be, but yeah. that's out course, west. And I don't know, though. Given the weather we've had out here, it might not be too unusual here in the Chicago area. Aye, tis true, tis true. We just had a but, tornado uh, down by uh, about 20 miles south of me again the other night. But hey, once the office actually settled into a new location, they decided to give us a ice maker so Woo-hoo. i've been constantly crushing crunching on crushed ice for like the past month and a half okay. i got a rant on something here yes please okay. do i was at work the other day and i'm tired of just having just straight water to drink people that know me know that uh, i've given up like 90 percent of uh sugared soft drinks out of my diet and uh, you know i've lost some pounds and i did this like four years ago and uh the other day at work i'm just like i was tired of just having water all the time. First of all, the masterminds at our company said that, well, you can't have drinks other than water in your area because it might attract insects. You know, they said this a couple years ago. Of course, if they're worried about attracting insects, then they should ban us all from the lunchroom because there's always like freaking ants in there and they never do anything about it. But I digress. Um, So I brought some tea bags. So I have unsweetened iced tea. Uh, Side rant, keep that sweet iced tea in the South. That stuff is crap. I hate it. Okay. Anyway. Oh, you are so... I'm on a roll. Oh. Uh, ah. but, um, oh, my goodness. We have a water cooler in the break room. It's got the, 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 the cold water and it's got a hot water one, you know, for coffee, tea, whatever. So, you know, I put a tea bag in my cup and I you know, put some hot water in there about, you know, about halfway. And then I go to the refrigerator uh, into the freezer to uh, get some ice cubes. I open up the freezer, pull out the ice cubes. Both of them are freaking empty. I had to have hot, well, slightly warmer than lukewarm tea to drink with lunch the other day because somebody doesn't know how to freaking fill a damn ice cube tray. Oh, don't get me started on that. Anyway, how are you? <laughs> um... I kind of wish you were hosting tonight, because, man, I'm just so out of it. I just don't have no- nothing to say. But uh, uh, why don't we just get to what we're supposed to get to? I mean, it's been uh, it's been a busy two or three weeks for uh, for 
both of us, I well, guess. Well, you know, uh, there has been some news in the in the classic video gaming er- oh, arena. Yeah. Um, yeah, some pretty polarizing news. Some polarizing news, big news, uh, actually. And there are three really big pieces of news coming out of the plug-and-play community, first of all. Which chances are everybody who's listening to this already is Probably. long aware of it. But, but uh, the first of all, but then again, don't forget, we're on Tuiville. There's a lot of people on there that listen that don't uh, that aren't on Atari Age and have seen this news already. But first of all, it's been revealed that, yes, there is an Atari Flashback 7 coming out. The home plug-and-play console only has... Um, the only additional game on it is Frogger, and it's not the Atari 2600 version. It's a special version just for that flashback. So that's kind of a you know par for the course for the, those uh, particular Atari 2600 flashbacks. However, they're introducing a second Atari flashback at the same time, a handheld Atari 2600. That's what I'm looking forward to. And it's got an SD card slot. It'll play... What they, it's like 95% of the Atari 2600 games. It will not play anything. It has a special chip in it, so you won't be able to play Pitfall 2. But you can pretty much play just about everything that doesn't require a special chip or the uh, keypad controllers. Um, I think it has Indy 500 on the console, and I think they, uh, they, kind of, they worked around it because that has a special controller that it used. But for the most part, you'll be able to play 95% of the 2600 games on there. The paddle games that are built into it just use left and right on the pad, which, I don't know, kind of sucks, but, uh, you know... What are you going to do, though? What are you going to do? I mean, it's, I mean, it's for, a handheld. For something like that and for the price they're going to be asking and for what it can do, you know, it's people who are, who are all like, oh, I'm outraged about this, shut the hell up. I all think right? it's a great deal myself. I'm, what th- what were they saying? So uh, 60 bucks? Yeah, it's 60 like bucks, that. and it has 61 built-in games and an SD card slot. It's a bit. It's modeled on the uh, Sega Genesis one that they keep coming out with every year, and uh, I don't think they've released the uh, the details on the Sega Genesis one. But uh, they say there's something new in the Sega Genesis handheld uh, that they're coming out with that I'm kind of curious about. But uh, follow the uh, uh, the forums at Atari Age, and uh, in the there's a special sub forum called Dedicated Consoles. You know, keep looking in there or in the. Uh, the classic gaming uh, Sega Genesis uh, subform too, for more information on that as it becomes available. But uh, the speculation on the Genesis handheld is that it might have save states. That's uh, one speculation. Cool. That would be nice, especially for people that are playing some of the longer RPGs. But it would be nice to have for games like Sonic the Hedgehog and all of those. Yeah, it's extremely rare that I ever get a chance to have that long a stretch to play this stuff. Right. Usually when I get to play a handheld, it's during my commute to work if i don't take my bike and that's 40 minutes at the most nowadays it's not enough time to do all that all those more involved games even columns three i haven't been able to finish because of that i love the columns games those are way fun people don't realize when the nintendo entertainment system came along it totally transformed home gaming from what it was because now we had i mean there were a few like longer more involved games especially on the Intellivision, but for the most part it was they were all kind of like quicker, arcade-type Twitch games for the most part. The uh, Nintendo Entertainment System comes along, and it updates the graphics, the sound, and the types of games that you can have. And suddenly, you got epic adventures like the Legend of Zelda games, Final Fantasy, Dragon Warrior, all of those. And, uh, of course, some of them had battery backups so you could save the game. That's, that had never been done before on a, on a home game up to that point. But the, uh, 
Yeah, no, I don't think there was, there was battery backup on any uh, games. No way to save any of your progress, which made the Atari 2600 basic programming the joke that it is. I understand why they did it, and Warren Robinette, bless his heart, did it. I think it was Warren Robinette that did that. Uh, bless his heart, I mean, he tried uh, He tried best he could with what he had, but you know they just wanted to you know, call it the video computer system. But, uh, but this brings up us to the second piece of our three big uh, pieces of home gaming plug-and-play news. Um, Nintendo! Nintendo is coming ah, yes. out with a plug-and-play console. And it has 30 games built in. Uh, I think they said it's going to retail. It was either 40 or 50 bucks. I can't remember off the top of my head. This has a damn good selection of games on it. Donkey Kong, Donkey... Uh, I don't remember all of them. Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., both of the uh, Legend of Zelda games, all three of the Super Mario NES games. Then they also got third-party stuff like uh, Super Contra. Uh, I believe they had uh, the second Castlevania, which I'm kind of wondering why they put that one on there, because that's widely regarded as one of the worst in the series, if not the worst. You know, you can find pretty much find the list online anywhere. One thing I didn't, I wasn't able to find out about the NES plug-and-play is, are you limited to just the games on that console? Yes, you are. Then what's the point? I never understand the big deal because about Because the console things. is 50 bucks. Somebody went through this. If you have a uh, Wii, Wii U, DS, or whatever, to buy all of the games in the store, and I believe they are all available in the Nintendo's online environment, it'll cost you 150 bucks. You can find yourself a working system for about 30 bucks. Get yourself an EverDrive cartridge, and there you go. You're all set. But for the average gamer, remember, we're a little more... I hate using the term hardcore because I don't really consider myself hardcore. I, yeah, we're not. Hardcore. But we're we're not the we're not the average person who remembers it that may have tossed it in the closet years back or whatever or sold it at a garage sale. It's it's really not targeted toward us. Uh, we know about the EverDrives and we know we can go get a console, get the EverDrive, get the ROMs. But the average person doesn't really know about that. And so for them, this is a bargain. And so that's... Uh, okay, well, I, I get the point because, I mean, this this is not necessarily for people like you and me. But I, I'm probably going to still go out and get one of those. I'm definitely going to get the Atari 2600 handheld. Oh, the, oh, that's, uh, the 2600 so handheld, I believe, uh, is available November 1st, and the NES is November 11th. But the third piece of news, and this is the big one, there is a Kickstarter going oh, just for another plug-and-play console that I know everybody's going to get excited about. There's no retail price. It's just a Kickstarter at this point, but it is going to be a Nintendo-compatible plug-and-play. Uh, it's going to have eight games in there, and they're all the Bible games by Wisdom Tree. Get out of town. You're going to have Bible Buffet. You're going to have Exodus. You're going to have Spiritual Warfare. You're going to have Bible Adventures, Bible Buffet, the whole nine yards. Well, whole eight yards in this case. Are these the games that Angry Video Game Nerd reviewed? The same games. Oh. It might be worth going just for the kitsch factor. Just like how after all of the PTL Club scandals started, how uh, Tammy Faye Baker became a big icon in the gay community, I have a feeling this has a kind of a, a similar thing that it might do, kind of be like the whole kitsch thing. Somebody did suggest, I saw in one of the Atari Age forums about this, uh, they saw a picture of it, and it's kind of a nondescript, like, I don't know, black and, and gray thing, and somebody just piped up saying, you know what? The color of this thing should be baby blue to match the cartridges that the games came in. 
And if they make it baby blue, I might throw in a couple of bucks in the Kickstarter. I'm not joking about that either. No, I, I know you're not joking. The <laughs> thing is, a vast majority of these Kickstarters that I hear about always end up being vaporware. I've only backed one Kickstarter, and I think I said this before. The Cyanide and Happiness webcomic has um, a, a game that they kickstarted, and it's actually, they're manufacturing it now, called Joking Hazard. It's a it's a card game. I don't know if you've played, like, Apple to, Apples to Apples. No. Apples to Apples is, is you get a green card with a word on it, and everybody else has to take a card from their hand, which it's a red card, and it has a word on it, and the word that closely matches the word on the green card, and then the the uh, the person who played the green card is the judge of that particular round, and whoever he chooses as the best answer gets the green card, and uh, whoever gets like five or seven green cards wins. It's a similar concept with a judge and what all. The, uh, the person who's the judge lays a panel down out of his hand. All of the cards are a panel of a random cyanide and happiness panel. And then he takes the top card off the deck and plays it next to it. And then everybody plays the punchline third card. And whoever the judge deems the winner, the best punchline for that hand, gets the points and uh, you know wins that hand. And I kicked in 60 bucks in that Kickstarter because I love cyanide and happiness. It is probably the funniest webcomic out there. The people were talking about the Nintendo plug-and-play. They're saying that that's a good move because it keeps Nintendo's name in the news for this uh, cycle. It generates buzz because Nintendo announced that their next console uh, isn't coming out until March of next year. And uh, and it also infuses them with cash. People are going to lap this thing up. This is going to be... I, 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 I will predict that if it is not the top selling toy this Christmas season, it'll be in the top 10. Now, you're talking about how this is not something necessarily hardcore gamers are going to go crazy for. Um, truth is, they are. And I really don't know why they are. Like, where have you people been? You've probably, you probably have your own Nintendo already. I don't know. But the, or is I, it the hoarders who have to have, like, every variation of the Atari 2600 and every single color of of the PlayStation 5 or whatever? Yeah, is it... Just those kind of people who are who just want to buy this stuff and never actually use it? I don't know. I will say this. There is one major design flaw. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's not a design flaw so much as it is a quirk, and I, I understand why they did it, is you can't use the classic NES controllers in there. It has a totally different connector. That having been said, it, that sounds like a, a bad move, but the connector they put on there is the same connector that they use for the Wii and the Wii U. So, it comes with one NES, classic NES-style controller, and you can buy an extra one for 20 bucks. It's got two ports on it. And what you can do is uh, use those classic NES controllers on the Wii or the Wii U and use it for uh, stuff that you buy out of the Wii store. And uh, you can also use, say, like the Wii Classic controller, which is a different controller than the NES Classic controller, on the, uh, the plug-and-play. I think it, I, I really think it's a, it's a smart business move all around for Nintendo. And the thing, nobody expected Nintendo was going to do anything like this, but it is a great move uh, PR-wise and cash-wise on their part. That's how I see it. I don't know. I, ju I just don't care. That's all there is to it. I do. I do. I, I like it. Um, I mean, I, hey, I, 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 have like my, I have my handheld, um, re I have my Retro Duo portable that can play Nintendo and again, does play Nintendo stuff. So Again, yeah. we're different than the, the, the target market for this thing. We're different from a lot of uh, people, not just... Uh, I'm different. That's why my mom says I'm special. 
So, uh, other stuff, um, Pixel Blast Arcade. Yes, I was going to, uh, well, no, I wasn't. Well, I, yeah, it, it was on my mind. We had a fun time at the opening. Why don't you talk about it a little bit? I've been monopolizing the conversation yes, so been. far. Jeez, yes. I'm the host here. Jeez. Hyde cut everything Jim said out until now, including his introduction. Yeah. <laughs> um... Let's see. So what's going on is we visited Pixel Blast in Lisley, Illinois. Lyle? No, Lyle is L Y L E. <laughs> Here's a funny thing. Back in my Coleco Adam days, there was a store in the town of Lyle, L I L S E, uh, called Compu Kingdom, where I went and bought all of my third party Adam hardware and software. And the guy who ran it was a guy named Lyle, L Y L E. So, <laughs> Lyle owned a store in Lyle. I'm done. Pixel Blast. Lyle. Lisley. Pixel Blast in uh, Lisley, Illinois. And um, let's see. They are at 1045 Burlington Avenue. They are right by a train stop. So, if you can get a train over to uh, over to Lyle, um, then it's a really easy uh, commute, I guess. it's All the arcades in the Chicago area are convenient to a train stop. But, so yeah, we went to uh, Pixel Blast Grand Opening. I don't think they had the entire arcade open. I thought I heard Paul or someone else say that they had another room that wasn't ready yet. They look a little bit smallish, but it's still, well, I don't know about you, but I would absolutely recommend uh, uh, checking out. Um, we I mentioned before how it seems that every arcade that I've been to in the Chicago area has something special about it, and Pixel uh-huh. Blast is no... Um, exception. I think I know what you're going to talk about. A majority of the video games at Pixel Blast are your core uh, games. You have Pac-Man, uh, Ms. Pac-Man. Actually, I think they have two different Ms. Pac-Mans because one of them was kind of glitching out. They, I think they brought another one out on the floor. Oh, did they? I think they did the next huh. day. Oh, the next uh, day. Okay. They have uh, the, the first sequel to Galaxian, uh, Dig Dug, Cubert, and not only do they have Cubert, but also uh, Jeff Lee, the creator of Cubert, was uh, on site uh, that night working on a painting for Pixel Blast. Especially commissioned painting. Especially commissioned. I think he also autographed the uh, side of their cabinet, too, after... Uh, yes, he did. It was a I'd little like suggestion. I'd, l- I'd like to take credit for that, because I think I asked him, hey, Jeff, are you going to autograph the side of that? And he's like, yeah. Yeah I, th- yeah, I think you did do that, he didn't said, you? Know, you? <laughs> I wasn't asked, but I'll be happy to do it. And so, Hey, why not? Did. I think he signed the one at Galloping Ghost. Oh, yeah. that yeah. In fact, recently, he, re- he redid the one at Galloping Ghost just to freshen it up. But uh, oh, and not only that, but the uh, the Cubert cabinet at Pixel Blast has the original marquee where it doesn't actually have the name of the game on yes, it. Yes, it's it got has the little swear bubble. Yeah, the symbols. And I, I have to say this about Jeff Lee: he didn't just paint something and bring it to Pixel Blast. He oh, actually yeah. painted it there over the course of a few hours. And if you ever get a chance to really watch him do artwork, you know, paint a painting or whatever live in front of your eyes. The man is a talent. I'm telling you, man. He he really is very, very talented. And uh, I'd like, you know what? I'd like to see him and King Henry VIII do something together. That would be really cool. I think it would be. And Jeff Lee has done public artwork in uh, Oak Park. And I really want to go on a tour of Oak Park I've and uh, find his paintings. I've been to Oak Park, and it's just outside the city. I've been through it. I've never stopped. But uh, one of these days, I want to get out there and check out some of his public art. See what he. Yeah, I really see what do. He does. I, w- I want to see where it is, and uh, 
We have pictures of, uh, of everything, including the Jeff Lee work in progress. Um, so we'll definitely post them for, uh, for the whole world to see. Woohoo! You know what? In, in, we've said it before. El- almost everybody involved in the arcade industry that we've met are just the nicest people in the world. And, you know, Jeff Lee's no different. Seriously. I mean, just come to the arcades in Chicago. Chances are, if you hang out at one of them for any length of time, you'll run into one of them sooner or later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the time we were at Galloping Ghost and what's-his-name from Mortal Kombat came in on a, on a whim. Oh, yeah. Uh, Philip Ahn and yes. um, Piscina. Yep. They, they stop in pretty frequently. But uh, the thing about Pixel Blast that I thought was special was the non-video games they have. Yes! I didn't see any pinball. I don't know if they're going to have pinball, but uh, there are three things that you just don't normally see at Chicagoland arcades, at least not uh, the ones that uh, the video game nerds such as uh, Jimmy G and myself and a lot of the people you hear mentioned on this podcast. We're not angry video game nerds. We're just mildly irritated video game nerds. I'm very irritated, actually, but... um, they have a air hockey table, which is which is cool. And, and what's interesting is I think Paul said that uh, they put the air hockey table in for basically for people who don't like video games, but who are there with people who do like video games. So that way they have something uh, they can possibly enjoy it. They also have Brunswick handball. Air handball. Brunswick air handball, which is basically like a side-by-side air hockey it has one of the most interesting arcade items I have ever seen in my life. I've never seen it before, and I think I've never the reason seen anything like it myself. But I it think was, the reason why it was so unusual and why you've never seen it is because of the manufacturer, Brunswick. What do they make? They make pool tables and bowling things. They make equipment for bowling alleys, and I think this stuff was pretty much these machines may have all only been in bowling alleys. That's true, and the and this handball. It was interesting. It was in use all freaking night. Uh, dare I say, I think it was, I would say if it wasn't, it was very close to being the most popular machine in the place. Seriously, dude. We had a hard time getting on and there it. there was one other thing that I want to talk about uh, from there. That I, I, I mentioned there are three non-video games that really stuck out to me. The third, they have an electromechanical game called uh, Hill Climber. Yes, that was fun. No, I'm pretty sure the name is right, because I couldn't find it before because I was looking under Mountain Climber, Ah, but I know it's Hill Climber. And the crazy thing is, the Hill Climber, it's an electromechanical game, there's a steering wheel on front, and basically what you're trying to do is get a pinball, essentially, from one end of the table to the other with a steering wheel. From the bottom of the table to the top of it. Well, yeah, from the bottom of the the top, using a steering wheel that operates a series of side-by-side ramps. It's almost like a parallel version of the old uh, Labyrinth game that you could you get in uh, stores where the board yeah. games are. Mm-hmm. What's crazy about this is you would think it's well, it's electromechanical. It looks kind of old school. It's from 1993. It's not really oh, that wow. old. It was a fun machine. Uh, it was worth a, it was it was worth a play. It was addicting. I was playing it over and over and over. I was like, okay, this time I can do it. This time I can make it all the way. Never could. This time uh, for sure. That was fun. That, but yeah, I mean, where else are you going to find that? One thing I did notice is there was one glaring omission in the, uh, and I asked them about it actually, in their uh, lineup Tinkle of video pit. games. Okay, there were two glaring omissions, uh, but the one I asked them about was Joust. There was not a Joust machine oh, on the yeah. floor. The thing um, is, they said they have about one. having a Joust. They have a Joust, but it was, uh, there's something wrong with it and they're still working on it. 
So, so yes. Um, seriously, I mean, if you're in the Chicago area, uh, if you're in the western suburbs, uh, head on down to Lyle and uh, check the place out. Um, the only concern I have about the place is unlike Galloping Ghost and Underground Retrocade, which were are pretty much both storefronts, the building this place is in, even though it's downtown Lyle, it kind of looks like it's almost in like a little professional building with, you know, where like you'd find like a dentist or a chiropractor or some yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it, it might be a little hard to find. Uh, maybe not now after the Jeff Lee painting. They may have that up in the window or something. But it is like right on the, the main corner in downtown Lyle, though. But, uh, you know, look for it. There's also a little uh, used uh, record store in the same plaza. Did you ever get in there? Uh, they weren't open yet. Oh, they weren't open? They okay. hadn't moved in yet, no. Oh, they hadn't moved in. I thought they were moved in. Okay. They may have opened since. Okay. But, but yeah, uh, they were just moving in at the time. And something else, uh, if when you're going to Pixel Blast, just be prepared for everything around to close. Yeah. It seems that that, cl- that town shuts down early. But there, too, though, be fair. Uh, there was a big fireworks uh, thing going on that night, I believe. That's true. That's true. Because this was the July 4th weekend. So that stuff may have been closing. I will say this. There are no restaurants in downtown. There, there's two. There's one ultra-popular Mexican restaurant that you got to wait 45 minutes to get into. Because nothing else is open. Nothing else is open. And... Like a block further north, maybe two blocks further north, there was a kind of a little uh, Greek uh, fast food. Uh, well, let's call it what it is. A it's, it's a little dive, but it was. I'll tell you what. I mean, even though I call it a dive, man, that was one of the best hey, euros you get, I've you ever get had. Some of the best food ever at those kind of places. Oh hell yeah! If you come to the Chicago area, first of all, you have to get an Italian beef pizza. You know, that's up to you. But you have to visit one of these little Greek places. Like, if you see a Vienna beef sign or a Kronos Euros sign... Go in. Doesn't matter where it is. Doesn't matter the cleanliness of the place. Go in. Mm -hmm. You'll get good food. Oh, yeah. So, wow. What else do we have to talk about? Go to Pixel Blast. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. What else did we do? Oh, yeah. Video Game Summit. Uh, Video Game Summit happened on uh, July 16th at uh, the Odium Sports and Expo Center. And... uh, Actually, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I, th- I actually had a good time at that. Even though we pretty much just spent most of the time just hanging out at the table, yeah, and trying to get Tinkle Pit working on my Raspberry Pi, which you did, and I congratulate you. Yes, on that, and uh, we had we had people playing Tinkle Pit. Yeah, too. we, we had did. One guy who kept coming <laughs> back to play. Yeah. He kept coming back to play Tinkle Pit. I was a little bit surprised about that. But yeah, I mean, it's like our mission is finally starting to take off. We are getting Tinkle Pit the recognition that it deserves. Damn Why do we straight. think it deserves it? Because it's called Tinkle Pit and you yeah. use a blue ball. Yeah, a yeah. blue ball that looks like butters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, hey, and what's crazy is I think I spent more money, like I bought more stuff there just on that one floor than I did at Midwest Gaming Classic, which is a huge mammoth. I think maybe we should say describe a little bit about what this uh, what this is. It isn't like a it's a hell of a lot smaller scale than Mid, uh, Midwest Gaming Classic. I mean, seriously, I would say it's not even an eighth the size of what Midwest Gaming Classic oh, was. Yeah. Yeah, there were no arcade tiny. video games there, but what they had was they had around the outsides of the room they were in. It was a pretty decent sized room. Oh, yeah. Were vendors selling just about everything? I saw a few things in there. I never thought I would ever see in my life. I can't... Gosh, there was one item I saw that I was interested in picking up, but I can't remember what the hell it was off the top of my head now. It doesn't matter. I didn't have the money anyway. But uh, 
and in the middle, they had different classic gaming consoles set up. And I got a chance to play Tempest 2000 on the Atari Jaguar for the first time in my life. Oh, speaking of which, did they have Jagfest this year? Because I know that Dan always makes a big deal about Jagfest. Yeah, I, I wonder if Jagfest is the, the whole classic console area. We have to ask him about that. But they had all these consoles set up. They had the, an Atari Flashback 1 set up. They had 2600. They had a 7800. Oh, by the way, I have to say something. It wasn't the Atari Flashback 1. It was the Atari Flashback 2. And it's the, it was the one that had the 7800 version of Food Fight in it. First of all... That would have been the one. Okay. I've said uh, there's only three home versions of Food Fight. The Atari 8-bit computer, the Atari 7800, and the uh, the one that was on the Flashback 1. Only play the 7800 one. The one on the uh, on the flashback was even more trash than the uh, than the Atari eight bit version. Oh cripes! Yeah, it was it was bad. But they had all sorts of classic consoles. I didn't see if they had. Uh, I, di- I didn't see all the consoles they had, but they had like a Turbo Graphics sixteen. Yeah. And they had they had a Super Graphics, which was interesting. A it's a, it was the sequel to the Turbo Graphics. I don't know if it ever was released in the U S. Huh. May have been a really short lifespan. I think there were only eight games made for it. And uh, they had one of those set up. Man, I wonder if there's a game-by-game podcast for it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There might be. Oh, they, they also had tournaments going on all the time, too. They had a Bomberman tournament. I do remember that. Uh, I don't remember quite what else. I don't have the uh, the program right here, but uh, you know, they had a lot of like tournaments in the, in the play area. And as you were saying, I had a good time, too. The only problem I have with the event is the facility. Yeah. Yeah, the facility is way run down. It's an old it's a sports arena. You can you walk in and they have like a basketball arena on the second floor. They have a hockey arena on one side. They have on the main floor and then they have another basketball and uh, it's a sports facility. Uh first of all, it is so dated in 70s. You can tell, you know, that when it was built. But the biggest thing, and this is not a complaint about the, the video game summit, because the event itself is very, very, I like it. But there were a lot of leaks in the ceiling. Yeah, I think uh, one of the vendors actually uh, had yeah. a damage report from it. Yes. And the most disturbing thing was in the men's room, in one of the stalls, there was a hose coming from the ceiling and it was it was like dangling out of the ceiling, and the end of it was like about two three feet above the floor. And I'm looking at that, and I'm like, "What is this? What's going on here? Yeah, What's we'll post the pictures, story? by the way? Yeah, oh, that's yes, we did. Uh, you had pictures of it. Yeah, we we will share the pictures. And um, then there was the incident where I lost my keys. Yeah, that was their fault too, wasn't yeah. it? That was their. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, felt we, stupid we're not about trying that. to that bite my, my hand that feeds us. By the way, I mean, one thing I have to say is that the staff there was really nice. The staff was amazing. Uh, in fact, they bent over backwards for us because we were and asking. We didn't even ask them to. Yeah, All we asked. We just asked. We yes, asked no the, question. Can we tape up our sign to the wall. And, and they said, uh, no, her but name let me... was Danny, I believe. Yes. She said, you know what? Let me see if I can get yes. you an easel. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she was really, really nice. And uh, the the lady in the bar slash grill slash microwave warming center no I, I i kid on that last one but the the staff at the bar were nice and um the staff was just amazing in fact when i lost my keys which i found in the bag i had for garbage don't know how they got in there but uh, one of the staff said we'll keep an eye out for him and uh when we went to pack up to leave the guy said oh we did nobody came to turn your keys in i'm like oh uh no i found them and i was totally thinking it was like a typical staff where somebody's 
you know, they'll, you'll tell them something, they'll just, like, shrug it off. But no, they didn't. The staff of the Video Game Summit and the staff of the Odium, all of the people were just amazingly nice people. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Your thanks goes out to uh, yes. Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name because I never heard it. I, I want to think it's Iacovelli. I want to think it's pronounced Iacovelli. But thank you, Dan. Yes, for, thank you, Dan. For your hard work. He's a he's a nice guy. He's yeah. a nice guy. Yeah, and I saw him at Galloping Ghost right afterwards too. Well, he did say that they were going to have kind of a quote unquote after party at the Galloping Ghost. Yeah, I must which have means come and join us there. There wasn't anybody there when I got there. Yeah, I think <laughs> it was kind so, of just a. Just an invitation. Show up yeah. if you want. Yeah, and while I was at Galloping Ghost, I played their what, what do they call it? Pinky Pack. Pinky Pack. There is a custom-made Ms. Pac-Man cabinet. Oh that, yes, that Prince Arcades mm-hmm. has. It's all pink. It is a is actually a Ms. Pac-Man Turbo. And the idea is that if you want to play it, you have to donate to breast cancer research, and they have a donation box. Like, oh, is that like a, what a, it was? A Galloping Ghost. They had a donation box at the counter. And if you wanted, what you could do is, uh, you know, donate any amount and slip a piece of paper with your name and email address on it, and you would win a Qbert marquee autographed by Jeff Lee. Oh, nice! And one thing I have to say, um, that's actually not a new concept. The uh, the playing a video game for charity because I think somebody did like some Pac Man machines like last year or something. But yeah, it's, it's the- still a great idea. I want to see it keep going with different games and different charities. I got a question about it. The machine was set on free play, or did you have to put a quarter in it? No, it was set on free play. Okay, because I thought... But they they wanted you to make a donation. It wasn't required. It was more of a, you know, it would be nice if you donated. Okay, my understanding was, the way I saw it, and this is what, what I was talking about, how they had, like, a charity arcade thing last year, was my understanding of that was you would put a quarter in it, and all of the quarters would go to the charity. Right. And yeah, I was they, wondering if this was, it was the same thing. This time. Okay, I got you. Okay. All right. Well, that clears that up. One thing I do have to say about Galloping Ghost is they finally got one of my all-time favorite oh, yeah. video arcade games in, and I've got to get over there to play it sometime. And that game is Two Tigers. I absolutely love that game. However, you know what? We're not going to talk more about it. We're going to do an episode about it. But uh, you already know how I'm going to rate it when we eventually talk about it. But they got Two oh, Tigers. They got a Two Tigers machine in, and I've only ever played it in the arcade once, but I remember loving loving the hell out of that game, and now somebody has finally got it. And in fact, there are so few places that have that game that they actually had to create an entry in arcade for Two Tigers. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's an awesome game, and I can't wait to get up there to play it. But yeah, going back to um, Video Game Summit, because other podcasts have to talk about this, I have to talk about my pickups. Now, when I got my Retro Duo Portable, which is by default a SNES handheld, I think I talked about this before, but I was looking for some kind of handheld device like for Super NES, and first thing I saw was Supa Boy. And uh, shortly after I discovered that, I went over to Underground Retrocade, and Scott actually had a Supa Boy in the cabinet. And I asked him, I said, hey, how is that thing? He took it out, he handed it to me, and he said, here, try it and see what, see what you think. And fired it up, and it had uh, Super Mario Kart in it. And I played a few rounds. I was like, oh, this is really cool. And, you know, so it's like, okay, yeah, this is something I definitely want to have. But I opted for Retro Duo Portable because it can play NES. It can play Sega Genesis with the proper adapter. It can play, I believe, Game Boy Advance, too. 
So it's like, okay, I'll get that and I'll get a bunch of, uh, I'll, I'll get the appropriate EverDrive carts for it, which I did. I cheaped out on the SNES EverDrive because there are multiple versions of it. There are certain ones. There's like the bare one. There is ones with uh, DSPs on it. Turns out that Super Mario Kart required DSP. So if I put the uh, Super Mario Kart ROM on it, it wouldn't run. So I was like, oh man. I figured, okay, do I want to buy another EverDrive cart for more money than what I paid for it, then try to turn around and sell the old one? Or do I just want to buy an actual Super Mario Kart cartridge? And looked on eBay and other sources, couldn't find one for under 30 bucks. What happened, I told you when we were at uh, uh, Video Game Summit, because I couldn't find it. I said, if you happen to notice a Super Mario Kart anywhere, let me know. And almost right away, you found one. I found one two tables over. Yeah, two, two tables, tables over. over. And I swear, I looked through their carts, too, and I didn't see it. <laughs> I, I, I saw it. I, I picked it. <laughs> you're sitting at the table. I saw the cart, picked it up. I looked at you, and I'm like, Sean. I snapped my fingers, gesturing you to come here with my finger, and then I pointed down at the cartridge. <laughs> yeah, then the, and I said, "How much do you want for it?" The guy said, thirty bucks." I and I just walked away because it's like, man, I'm not paying thirty bucks for that. And then he said, "How about twenty five? And I turned back around. And I said, "Okay, you got me." <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, and I took it home. It was and, closer to the end of the day, and a lot of people are wanting to get rid of stuff because at the end of the day they don't want to they want to take as little home as possible yeah exactly Less work for them exactly so you know i took it home and i tested it and it works it works it works great so seriously there was a lot of stuff for sale at this thing. yeah and uh let's see i also upgraded my loose 2600 bowling to a cib and i also upgraded my loose dragster for a 2600 to cib and i thought i had upgraded my loose super cobra to cib but it turns out i didn't have it in the first place so uh-huh. so it was brand new to me so i was like yeah okay so it was actually a good day especially because my wife didn't get mad at me for spending money on video games like i have to say i didn't pick up any video games but i did get a couple of pickups they had commemorative bottles of video game summit hot sauce and they are the Billy Mitchell hot sauces. Ah. They have a commemorative bottle for this year. They still had some from last year. The last year one is a habanero. And I have to say, these are really good hot sauces. Uh, we've got to find a way to get Billy Mitchell on the show. Uh, knowing me, though, I'd probably spend more time talking about his hot sauces <laughs> than his video well, game Well, I'm sure he wouldn't mind I, because that's advertising for him. That's true. I, I, I absolutely love hot sauce i've got mm. I, i'm gonna have to get collect all of my hot sauces together someday and uh, take a picture of them and uh i got quite a few i don't i'm not a i don't have a bazillion bottles but i got enough to keep you know keep myself busy um yeah. oh one thing we forgot to do is it's kind of been a thing uh when we go to like uh well when we went to to the midwest gaming classic i downed that bottle of uh ranch flavored soda live i think it was and um, I totally forgot to bring... I have a bottle of Buffalo Wing flavored soda. And I forgot to bring that to down it at the Video Game Summit. So that error will be corrected sometime soon. Oh, yeah. And I, I just had an so. idea. I just had an idea. Uh-oh. We should get several bottles of the of like the ranch-flavored soda. And we get Doc Mack, uh, King Henry VIII, Jeff Lee, Philip Ahn, see if we can get Eugene Jarvis or whatever... And I'll drink them live on the internet. <laughs> Just do a whole group retch, you know? Oh, man. Um, uh, I, I want to do that. Uh, Doc, 
you know how to get a hold of us. Yep. <laughs> Let's make this happen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one other Do thing I have to, I have to, because I have to get this out of my system because I'm just really excited about this. Uh, okay. Last time I went to uh, video games then and now, which is Sean Kelly's store. This was like right before Christmas. This is when I got uh, crazy climber as your Christmas present. Uh-huh. Uh, while I was there, I was basically buying up all the CIB Atari 2600 and 7800 stuff that they had that I didn't yet have. And they were all cheap, too. I was like, wow, these are really good prices, too. And one of them was Communist Mutants from Space. And I was uh-huh. like, oh, man, yeah, I got to get this one. And when I checked out, Sean said to me, he said, um, he showed me the Communist Mutants from Space. He said, judging by your other purchases, I'm assuming you already know about this game. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you know you need a supercharger for this, right? I kind of feigned um, non-ignorance. And I was like, yes, I do. Thank you. And he's like, okay, just wanted to make sure you knew that this is a cassette. This isn't a cartridge. You know? uh-huh. And of course, I was like, oh, that's. And the thing is, they just gave me impetus to get a supercharger. Uh huh. And also, I had to brag to him. I said, I'll tell you something, Sean. I don't have a 2600. I have a 7800. He's like, are you sure you want to? I said, yeah, because I know. Because there's some known issues with the yeah, supercharger. Not with mine, though. You've got an early uh, 7800 with the expansion port, right? Nope. I have the late 7800 uh, that has no indication whatsoever that there ever, ever was The very to be early one. and the very last yeah. 7800s are the most compatible units. Yeah. And I just recently finally got a supercharger, an Arcadia supercharger. And uh, oh, there's a really atrocious typo. Uh, not, not a typo, but a misuse of the word it's on the little disclaimer sticker they put on the... Uh, communist mutants from space box saying how it is no longer arcadia it is now star path or whatever and they and twice they spelled it's it's apostrophe ah. that's a misspelling you don't see very often uh, people when you're using it's as a pronoun there is no apostrophe anywhere it apostrophe s means it is and nothing else but it is but anyway so yeah i recently got a supercharger so i loaded up communist mutants from space oh my god i loved that game so much it was it is so cool i need to play that yeah you do it's really really cool i wonder if that'll work on the uh emulator on my pi i'm sure it would i mean there you can download the uh the ROM. ROM file. They right. haven't been format at uh, not uh, Atari Age doesn't have any of the supercharger. No, but I know of places where you can download yeah. them. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, it should work, and it should even work off an off a Harmony cart too. And oh, real quick, one thing I forgot to mention about the uh, the Bible Games plug and play we talked about earlier. The na- actual name of the product is called the Arcade. Spell A R K D E. Yes, a bad pun. So. At any rate, uh, with that, uh, with all of that news, we've been talking about an hour now. We have 45 minutes, maybe. Yeah, well, hey, look at uh, Ten Pence. They go on for a long, long, long time before they get to their thing. And they have a, a shout-out section, which we don't have. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we so do our own shout-outs. Like, for example, yeah. I want to just uh, uh, shout-out to Bill at the – it's a podcast, Charlie Brown podcast. Uh, thank you for I've the shout-out on your show. Yeah. Oh, he shouted us out on that Yes, on he that did. One? Yes, you oh, did. I have I've yet to listen to that one, and I like Charlie Brown. Yeah, it's it was in response to it to an email. That's I something said. else we have in common. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, and uh, he also hosts Atari Bites, which is how I found out about it. it's a podcast. Charlie Brown. I loved the Atari Bites episode about Burger Time when he had his kids on. That was really nice. It really crazy was. food. <laughs> the bag of crazy. I loved food. his daughter's backstory. 
oh god yes it was so much better than, than the original story <laughs> so, but. yeah check out bill's uh, burger time episode uh, i'll see if i can put a link to that in the show notes it's really worth watching or listening actually and it's worth watching too if you want to sit there and stare at nothing yeah oh, definitely do i have anything to shout out no uh, do we have any addenda and errata? I don't know if we do really. Oh, we... have we any addenda and errata? Um, I don't well, think we so. do. We do. Oh, we do. Yes, we do. Going back oh, to. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Theme. Okay. All right. Episode thirty-two. I asked if you had gone to the Wig Sphere, mm-hmm. and you said that you got there before Bart backed the car into it. Yes, I've been to the top of it. Well, that's good, because Bart never backed the car into it. It was Millhouse, wasn't it? No, Nelson hit it with a rock. Oh, He threw a rock at right. it, and it yes. fell over and hit the car. I don't know if I, I mentioned this. I may have, but the restaurant at the top of the Sunsphere, I mean, Wicksphere in Knoxville, Tennessee, was run by Hardy's Gourmet Services. I don't think you mentioned that. I probably would have remembered something yeah. that... Hardy's uh, Gourmet Services, and there was an actual Hardy's fast food joint at the base of it during the 1982 World's Fair. Oh, brother. Oh, and, and uh, uh, there's another erratum, as it were. This one is going back a couple of episodes before that, specifically episode 10 when we discussed Frogger and Asteroids. Uh-huh. I was talking about how there's, for the Texas Instruments and I believe the Apple II and possibly other platforms, there were these educational games. There was like a, a game for ma- for addition, a game for subtraction, a game for division a game for multiplication etc and the um multiplication one was an asteroids like game called meteor multiplication Mm -hmm. i repeatedly referred to the meteors as asteroids obviously they're not asteroids they're meteors my mistake sorry everybody and i have one addenda uh for episode 13 something i found out at pixel blast uh, a strategy a point pressing strategy for gyrus oh First of all, I was the first one to play. I, well, maybe, was I? Maybe it wasn't, but I was one of the early players of their gyrus machine, and I got the high score. To have it trumped by somebody else who who doubled my score, and then oh, another person added another hundred thousand to that. But the guy who scored two hundred and fifty thousand on it was telling me that on any level, if you leave three ships in the center and don't kill any more, the little bonus things. That you got to shoot uh, at first to get the, the double ship, but after, after if you have the double, they just come in and give you a third bonus satellite. Those will keep coming out, and you can just keep blasting those and rack up points and free lives. Huh. So um, there's that. That's just a little thing. So, I'm going to have to try that. I, I'm, I was going to try it the other night, but I didn't. So, so there's that. And uh, I think with that, one thing we do need to mention before we move on here real quick is uh, we still have our contest. Oh, that's right, the Charles Nelson yeah. Riley contest. <laughs> yes. How many Charles Nelson Rileys would it take to blank? You have to come up with the, the setup and the punchline. We've got a couple of entries, actually. Yes, we do. Hey, what did we say the prizes were going to be? I've got that extra Abladen Seagull 78. Oh, by the way, Ed Kelly uh, of Ed Ladden was actually in the Chicago area recently. I was wondering about that. because Yes, and what happened was he couldn't get out to meet anyone or go to any arcades because his schedule was tight. However, he did make it to video games then and now. So Ed Kelly went to Sean Kelly's store. Oh, I wonder Ed if they're related. Ed did, Ed did not meet Sean. But uh, I just wanted to throw that out there. But uh, so He bought Atari Video GameCube there. I was going to go yes. back for that, but uh, he beat me to it. I want to get that game. That's a fun game. 
it's underrated. I think I've never it's, played it's it. Not, I... It's not hard, but it's I, I think it's underrated. Give it a give it a whirl on your emulator or whatever. Yeah, I'll throw it on it, the it's fun. Cart. But uh, any rate, so uh, yeah, I've got the Adladen seventy eight Seagull adapter. Yeah, and I'd also like to add a Pie Factory podcast T shirt. It is a double XL shirt, never worn, recently laundered. If you're a small person and you like to go camping, use a stick and make a tent. There you go. Actually, it's pretty small for a double XL. Is it? Oh, well, then use it as a, a tent for your dog. A pup tent. So I think with that, uh, that's all we have for news, addenda, yeah. errata. I got nothing further. Do you want to just uh, talk about a couple of arcade video games? Yes. We've been talking about this in bits and pieces and bits and pieces. In fact, Hyde, drop in the montage I asked you to put in. Zookeeper is kind of like the perfect game in a way. Like I said, it's got in a uh, class with Robotron, with the frantic action, the awesome sound effects, and just tons of stuff going on all the time. By the way, the name of this game is Lost Tomb. Bottom, watch for special sales. Huh. So, shall we? Um, I guess we shall, and I see that it is a double joystick game. Kind of like Robotron. She asked me when I was over at her house one time if I wanted to play Robotron, and I'm thinking, oh, she's got an Atari 5200 with the with Robotron for it. Okay, I'm like, okay, sure. And so she leads me and my brother downstairs. She had a full blown, <laughs> full blown Robotron cab uh, cabinet, arcade cabinet there, and I was like, my eyes just literally bugged out of my head. I had never seen anybody with a full arcade game in their basement before. Okay, there's uh, Sean and Jim. We are playing Space Ghoul at the same time. Oh, this looks almost Robotron-y with the border there, you know? In MAME, and you're looking for it, just look. There are many different revisions of the game. Look at Robotron. There are many different revisions of it. Whoever wins this contest is getting an Atari 2600 conversion of every arcade game that has been a topic of our episode up until this moment that had an Atari 2600 conversion in the United States. They're not getting the prototype Robotron for the 2600, though. In my notes here, yeah, I actually have notes this time. I wrote Robotron meets Sinistar. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. We're not for the hardcore gamer, the guy out there that's rolling Robotron over time and time again. Now I'm going to get some hate mail saying, you can't roll Robotron over or some stuff like that. And Robotron, they had a coupler for the 5200 joysticks that you could use for one for move and one for fire. And even the Atari 8-bit home computer version of Robotron had a, a tray where you could sit the two CX-40 Atari 2600 joysticks in them and use them, one for move and one for fire. I was wondering about that because when I was at Underground Retrocade, I was actually talking with uh, Scott Lambert about that thing. I said, wasn't there something that would couple a couple of Atari just sticks together? And he said, he, he said, yeah, I think so. And one thing... Uh, so that's what it and was. you can use two joysticks on the, 20, on the 7800 version of Robotron. We've been talking a lot about Robotron. We haven't even covered that game yet. Maybe we should make that an ongoing theme. This week in Robotron. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> um, the 7800 version, you can use two joysticks, but they, they never created a coupler for the uh, 7800 Proline joysticks. Are you sure about that? Yes, I'm 100% positive about that. And the 5200 joystick coupler is actually too big 
to hold the 7800 joysticks and I remember trying that out long long time ago back when I actually had a 5200 with the base dungeon and the coupler but yeah I mean there were definitely ways around that so actually there is a thread in Atari age whose title is and I quote it's official Atari Inc did create a dual 7800 proline joystick coupler no kidding no kidding. I'll put a link to that in the Definitely. show notes. After I, I did not know they made such a thing. In fact, there's a picture of it here, too. I only remember where four of the machines in that arcade were. And that would be Zaxxon, which was along the wall when you first walked in. No, five machines. Uh, then Reactor was in front of you. There was like a, That was in a four-game island. The next four-game island had elevator action. The next four-game island over had Cubert. Against the back wall toward the golf course, the mini golf course, was Robotron. You can't kill Evil Otto. He's indestructible, which is rare for a video game character to be indestructible. The only other game that has that would be uh, Robotron. That I can think of off the top of my head. I know there's others. Uh, That game has a character called the Hulk. I was also researching this, and (laughs) of all things, I found this information. It was a Robotron website, (laughs) of all places, uh, where they're talking about Berserk. Wait, hold on, hold on. This week... Okay. I watched a video of uh, some guy playing Robotron in May. Oh, hold it. This week in Robotron. Okay. I was uh, watching video of some guy playing Robotron through MAME. They allow MAME. It's just a separate category from arcade. Yes. We're talking about Professor Pac-Man? We are going to talk about Professor Pac- God damn it, no. <laughs> We're not talking about Professor Damn Pac-Man. We're going to talk about... Yes! We're going to talk about Robot Run 2084. 2084. I I think it's an Irish guy, Rob Otron, actually. Uh, Yes, Robotron. Uh, Classic, total classic. Yes, Robotron. Well, you play... I do? Yes, you play. Your character that you move around the screen, your player, is a genetically modified thing, person, humanoid, robot, whatever, I don't know, who can fire guns in eight different directions. Uh, Thanks to a genetic experiment gone horribly awry. And the object of the game is to kill all the robots and pick up all the humans. Save all the humans. So kill things that aren't alive anyway. Actually, you can't kill everything, though, but we'll get to that in a moment. Now, the control panel is, uh, you got your, obviously, your one or two player start button. Uh, <laughs> kind of like on uh, on uh, Atari Bytes, where uh, he, when he talks about the instruction booklet and how he just loves the phrase, make sure you hold the controller with the red button to the upper left. <laughs> and you know, you should steal a clip from his show of him yeah, saying we sh- that. we should. I'm sure he'd love that. Yeah, uh, let him well, know, thing is, I can see a reason for that, though, because I, there is a perfect example of a game in which the instructions on how to hold your joystick might be important. Oh? Most home versions of Qbert. Ah, yes. Ah. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we will talk about it f- that in a future time. Oh, yes. Okay, now, you have two joysticks on the control panel. The left one moves you around in eight directions, and the right one fires you around in eight directions. So you c- can be moving to the left and fire the opposite direction in which you are traveling. And it's, it's really quite a simple but elegant control system, as opposed to the game we're going to be talking about next. <laughs> Boy, that game's controls mm. are is a mess, but we'll get to that. You're going around this it's screen. It's not a maze. It's just a screen, just one play field, and you're shooting everything. And it's not one of those well, things where if you... almost everything. It's not one of those things... Well, you can shoot them. 
everything that is bad for you can be killed. And I'll just give you a rundown of the characters. And I actually did some research on sources other than Wikipedia. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Oh, yeah, that's definitely getting you the da 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 thing. Yes. And um, I do know what to do, bud. Yes, you do. And uh, I've also got these scores written down, too. First of all, the most common enemy you're going to see in the, in the game is a grunt. It's a little guy. Looks like uh, the one guy from uh, the group Daft Punk, only he's uh, wearing red and yellow. The second enemy that you will see, I think you'll see probably second most, is the Hulk Robotron. He is indestructible. Oh, you get 100 points for the grunt, by the way. <clears throat> the Hulk Robotron is indestructible, so you don't get any points for him. However, when you shoot him, he uh, he will move back a little bit. You can kind of alter the you know their movement. He looks like, like a big green block with a tiny head and legs, and I think he's got a couple of arms, too. The next two enemies are the Spheroids and the Enforcers. Now, the Spheroid is a little pulsating circle that flies around the screen, and um, if you leave them on the screen for a while, they will hatch Enforcers. Enforcers look like kind of a, a squarish triangular thing with a little couple of arms on it, flies around the screen, and it shoots sparks. Now... Spheroids, when you shoot them, you get a thousand points for each spheroid you kill. It's probably a good idea to kill them because you get enforcers on the screen. Early on in my uh, experience with Robotron, I would always get killed by these things. But now I know some strategies and stuff how to uh, not do it. But you're best off shooting the spheroids as soon as they come on the screen, as soon as you can. Get the thousand points, and then you don't got to worry about it because each spheroid will hatch several enforcers, not just one. They will unhatch multiple. Uh, so anyway, 1,000 for killing the spheroid, 150 points for destroying the enforcer. The enforcer will shoot sparks at you, and you get uh, 25 points for the sparks. Now, the next two enemies are the quarks and the tanks. The quarks are similar to the spheroids, with the exception of that they are, they are pulsating squares, and if you leave them for a while, they will hatch tanks. Again, multiple tanks. Uh, the scoring is similar, or as they say in Kankakee, similar. My apologies, Steve Tui. He's from he's living in Kankakee. And he admits it? Yeah, I think it's some more coerced than admitted. Now, the quarks, again, are worth a thousand points. The tanks are worth 200 points, and they shoot bouncing bullets at you, which are 50 points each. And my favorite enemy in the game... Coming up next is the Brain. What is a Regis Philbin? Kill him, he's worth 500 points, but he's got some special powers that we will talk about in a moment. And another thing that's on the screen all over are electrodes. They're just there to make your life a living hell. I don't believe you get any points for shooting those. They're just like different shaped things. They'll look sometimes like a little squiggle, sometimes like an asterisk. Sometimes they'll, they'll spell out the numbers 2084. You run into those, you're dead. You shoot them just to get them out of the way. They don't chase you or anything. They're just there. But I don't, like I said, I don't believe you get any points for those. Um, I have not seen it. Now, also on the screen, you have humans. You have Mommy, Daddy, and Mikey. Mommy looks, is wearing a pink dress. Daddy's carrying a briefcase. And Mikey's a little red kid. I don't know if he's a redheaded stepchild or not. I would imagine he's probably biological. But at any rate, you get bonus points for picking up each of the last surviving human family. And you get 1,000 points for the first member you pick up, 2,000 for the second, 3,000 for the third, 4,000 for the fourth, and 5,000 for the fifth, and everyone after it, you get another 5,000 points. The average 
Robotron machine on its default settings will give you free life at 25,000 points. So that's important to remember because the, on the brain screen, which is every f- fifth screen, there are a lot of mommies, daddies, and mikeys on these screens. What the brains do, first of all, the brains will shoot cruise missiles at you. And you get 25 points for shooting one of their cruise missiles. Those are kind of hard to do. The best way to do them is just to run away from it while shooting in the opposite direction you're running. However, if a brain touches a human... Oh, one thing I forgot to mention about the Hulks. If a Hulk touches a human, it kills the human. And it makes a little sound. It almost sounds like the human is crying. And it leaves a little tasteful skull and crossbones on the screen. I think that same effect is used in the second game we're going to talk about. The sound effect, I believe. Yes. As far as the brains touching the human, it turns them into what they call a prog, which I think might be short for programmed or whatever, something like that. And the prog will turn into like, I don't know, it'll it'll be like in a multicolored rectangle with a tail, and you see the outline, a shadow of its former self. No, a shadow of the the Mikey, the daddy, or the the mommy in there. And they go around and they try to kill you. And you get uh, 100 points for killing the progs. Now, as far as the brainwave goes, like I said, you get there are a lot of humanoids on the uh, the brainwaves. And as I was saying, you get 1,000 more points for each human that you pick up. So 1,000, 2,000, 3, 4, 5, and then there are 5 afterwards. And at 25,000 points for a free life, you can rack up some pretty good free lives on the brainwaves. And uh, one thing I was reading was saying, and this is my personal experience too, if you lose two or three lives on a brainwave, don't feel defeated because you can make up those lives plus a couple of extra. Not to say that that screen is easy. None of these screens are easy. Hell, this is a difficult game. But it gives you a little breathing room, I guess, for later on in the game. Now, every seventh wave is a tank wave. The only thing on the tank waves are the tanks and the hulks. And the tanks have an interesting quirk in earlier versions of the game. Going back to the whole thing about how you could have two of the same game sitting next to each other in an arcade, but be playing a very, very different ROM. Might have maybe a little tweak made to the AI, maybe a bug fix. In early versions of Robotron, if you would let the tanks on the tank wave shoot 20 bullets, I believe they bounce off the side of the walls twice and then disappear. If you would let 20 of them go without shooting them, the tanks will not fire the rest of that level. I've never been able to do this. But I heard that it does happen, and I'm sure there's a YouTube video or two out there of this behavior. Now, I believe in later revisions of the robot, or Rob Otron ROM, that I believe they did correct this. Uh, I know I've not seen this behavior, or heard of this behavior, I should say, rather, in any of the home ports of Rob Otron, but um, we'll talk about the home ports later. But uh, So that's a, a strategy to use in some versions. Of the, I don't know if it's a really good strategy, because the tanks are a pain in the ass. They're, they're probably what kill me the most. Uh, like I said, the seventh wave is a, a tank wave, and it's every fifth wave thereafter. So, like, the seventh, then the twelfth, the seventeenth, uh, the twenty-second... Uh, 27th, so on and so forth, down the line. And I guess every ninth wave, and this is fascinating, is the grunt wave. Every ninth wave, you'll have the most characters on screen at one time in the game. 
The amazing thing is this game throws a lot of sprites, a lot of moving objects on the screen, even in the non, uh, you know, grunt wave or whatever they call it. And there's and there's absolutely no slowdown. This game is really quite the technical achievement in that regard. And uh, I would go, th- I would I would definitely load this game up and play it uh, in an emulator or something, and just so you can, if you've never played it before, just to see. Or go to uh, Galloping Ghost uh, Underground Retrograde. Did Pixel Blast have it? I don't know. I don't remember. I I want to say they, they didn't did when we were there. Yeah, they might have it in the back, because they like every other arcade, they got other games in the back that they're working on that they want to get on the floor. So maybe if they didn't have it on the floor, they had it in the back. But, you know, yeah, in Pixel fact, Blast that was anyway. one thing we noticed was that there were no Williams games on the floor at the time. There weren't, were there? No. Were they? No. Not even a Moon Patrol, which is a licensed game. Hmm. Fascinating. But go to Pixel Blast anyway, even though they don't have Robotron yet. As far as so, we, things may have changed. As far as we know. It's been, as as uh, it's been a few weeks. It's, it's been, been three a, weeks almost. Three weeks, yeah. So, But anyway, uh, you really got to see this game, the number of things that they put on the screen at one time. It's just amazing. It really is, which it's just kind of mind-boggling that there are home versions of it. Yeah, and apparently, from what I found out, there are 255 levels in uh, Rob Otron. And uh, that's the interesting thing about that is, is that 255, that's kind of the magic number with 8-bit computers and, and stuff. So now, were Larry I, and Eugene smart enough to uh, program a level zero? They probably were, because I've not heard of a kill screen in, Rob, uh, in Robotron. What about Robotron? So, not in that either. Ah. And here's something fascinating. In doing research for the show, I guess last year in... Uh, on January 30th and 31st, 2015, Twin Galaxies had a 24-hour, 100-million-point Robotron gauntlet marathon that they were live-streaming. And uh, apparently to get 100 million points, you have to play the game constantly for 24 hours. And um, on the uh, the site that I saw, they actually have link. I don't know if it's uh, links to the, the archive video or whatnot, but I'm sure it's out there. And uh, it's uh, that might be worth looking into because 100 million points. That's even though the points don't look like a lot, this can be a really high scoring game. It's not uncommon for a first time player to score 100,000 points on the game. Not because the game's easy, but because there's a, there's points to be had. So that's the rundown of the game itself. We've said this about a few other games before, but this is another game that is really, a, truly a feast for these senses, for both the sight and the sound. It sure is. It's amazing sound, and the visuals, it, it's just nonstop. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, it's, this is literally a game I think you could probably stress out to, because everything's just coming at you. I think that's characteristic of every Williams game, really. You will, it will, it'll stress you out, but you'll want to play it more. Uh, well, maybe not Moon Patrol. Moon, but Moon Patrol may, is a maybe licensed. Maybe not Bubbles. Moon Patrol is licensed from IREM, so it's not a Williams game. Williams did bring a few games over from other countries, and in fact, uh, I just got an idea for a theme. But I'm thinking about it: uh, Joust, Sinistar, Robotron, Stargate. The next game we're talking about, and I would say even Bubbles to an extent. Yeah, all of them are. These they're all really pretty much like pulse pounding getting your adrenaline up type of games. And um, even though I suck at this game, I I guess I can get to like the seventh wave consistently. I love this game. Um, It's the audio visual, as I would say, this is just an amazing game. It's, I won't say it's 
extremely colorful, but what it does have, it works with quite amazingly well. Well, I can't say that, though, because the transitions between levels are quite fascinating. I just love how it, like, it start when you complete a level, it, like, starts with, like, a band of colors going into the middle of the screen and then coming back out, and then the sound effect on the transition screens is pretty much legendary in the arcade. You can tell, you know, you can, it's, 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 it's easy to find the Robotron machine at any arcade just by listening. I mean, it's, I mean, a lot of games, you know, they're, they're, let's, let's face it, there was a lot of crap in the arcades, a lot of generic sounding games. You really couldn't tell one from the other. Robotron was pretty distinctive in that department. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of like digging for things to talk about. And I did a lot of research. <laughs> well, one thing you could talk about is how it has different the different ROM sets with different revisions are referred to by colors. Yes, and this isn't the only Williams game uh, to no, do that, a, I don't that's believe. that's a pretty standard Williams thing, actually. Well, maybe not standard, but it is common, because I think both games we're talking about have that kind of system. And in fact, there is a very new uh, ROM set that was released not terribly long ago, which they called the tie-dye ROM. Yes! And, and do you know why it was called the tie-dye ROM? I do not. It was called the tie-dye ROM basically because of Eugene Jarvis's uh, tendency to wear tie-dye a lot. His penchant? His penchant. Penchant. When we saw him at uh, Galloping Ghost uh, earlier in the year, he was, or late last year, whatever it was, he wasn't wearing tie-dye, I don't he was think. Wearing, I, I recall him wearing a pink button-up type, business-typey shirt, although the sleeves rolled up. You could tell it wasn't it wasn't a good business shirt. It was a comfortable shirt. Yeah, that's, that's a way to put it. But yeah, and the thing about the tie-dye ROM, it fixes a lot of issues that the other ROM sets had over the years. Huh. Um, for example, diehard gamers know about this bug there is a bug that depending on how the dip switches are set it's called the goldilocks mode oh now what happens is somewhere around 99 million 900 and some thousand points whether you hit 99 million 950 980 or 975,000, what happens is um, and you'll be playing for close to an hour at this point but what happens is every time you hit something you get an extra life. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, but you've got to get there first. You've got to get there first, and there's also another part to that. If you roll the score over at that point, you actually owe lives. What? Yeah. You're kind of in a, like, every additional life you got from hitting other things, you're actually in a deficit, and you have to score enough points to regain them back. No way! Way. Oh, dude, that actually sounds cool. I'll put a link to that story in the show notes. Now, the tie-dye ROM I've takes... Gotta, I have to see if there's a video of that on YouTube. I'm going to Well, double, Sparky, gonna I that. got news for you. There's going to be a link in the show notes. Yay! And basically, with the tie-dye ROM, one of the things it does is it fixes that issue and actually makes it an Easter egg, where you have to type in, I believe you're... Uh, you have to type the number four in for your initials on the high score table. Uh-huh. Or something like that, and it enables... It, it enables you to see that happen. Another thing that the tie-dye ROM set does is it adds another digit. So that way, if you get to 100 million points, the score doesn't roll over. It goes to 100 ah, million. Hence the Twin Galaxies 100 million point gauntlet. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And let's see. I think there are a few other things. Like, I think what happens is uh, 
yeah, here's here's what happens. If you enter four in the high score table, you actually start a game at 99,900,000 points so you can actually have a chance to see the Goldilocks mode. Oh, that's in the tie-dye version? That's the tie-dye version, yeah. The F-O-R? The number four. The, oh, the number four. Yes. F-O-U-R. You actually select the digit four. Really? They have numbers in the in the high score? A lot of games do. You know what? I never go past my initials. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah those, so I, I never really noticed that. Oh, that's true, because you usually don't... None of your initials would go that high. Well, I have a W. I usually put DBR for my initials, so sometimes like when I get to the R for that letter, I'll cycle backwards, because it might be a little quicker, and I see all the symbols. I know I mentioned this before, but Pac-Land, you can actually use a Pac-Man or Ghost Monster character as right. one of your Right, I initials. remember you mentioning yeah. that. And the tie-dye ROM set is basically a bug fix and a bunch of Easter eggs. And uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, some info about the tie-dye. I will have to get to Galloping Ghost to try out the uh, some of the that, that trick you were saying in the tie-dye version. If they have the, I'm sure they have the tie-dye version. I think they installed that on NARC Developers Night. I would think so. I thought I heard I th- something I about that, that. I thought I saw Larry Demar mess, uh, messing around with the machine. Isn't there uh, the story that Eugene Jarvis actually created the two... Well, he didn't create it. I mean, it had been done before, but he created the game Robotron with the two joysticks for therapy for his hand because he got into a car wreck? I might have heard that, actually. I'm sure if uh, that's incorrect, he will find out that we said something incorrect and will be very quick to correct it. So, But I do believe I've heard that. That is the story I've heard, and I would like to know if that was true or not. It, I guess it makes sense in some ways, but... Uh, you know how uh, these uh, yeah, tales how these... from the corner of the arcade go. I do want to say this. Um, I did keep in mind Chris Plus Plus's classic gaming book cast, and I did look through that, and I didn't see any mention of it there. Aha. Uh-huh. So it could just be one of those quote-unquote old wives' tales or old arcade operators' tales. Yeah, like the something. second berserk death or something. Yeah. So Awesome. I have a question for Hoser. Like, what a... What is the first arcade game to have a twin-stick control setup, meaning that you move with one joystick and you fire with the other joystick? And it's funny you mention that because I looked that up. Space uh-huh. Dungeon. Wrong. No? What was it? Space Dungeon is late, man. What was it? In 1977, Midway had a game called Boot Hill. Oh, yeah, you're right. And that uh, the second joystick also had a trigger button on it. People but- don't. Wait, there's more. Now how much would you pay? Don't answer yet, because in 1975, Taito, at least in North America, released Gunfight, which not only is a twin-stick setup, but it has two sets of twin-sticks, because it's a two-player game. Ah, there aren't as many of those, but... I, uh, no, I haven't seen too many in my travels. That's a rare cabinet. Um, oh, and speaking of cabinets, there's also a version of Robotron 2084 cabinet that's paired off with Joust. Really? Yeah. Uh, it was a company named Team Play that made that one at the behest of Williams. Huh. That is fascinating. I don't know when that came out. It's obviously not from the olden Ferg times. Hmm. Yay, verily. That is fascinating. Shall we talk about ports? Um, yeah, for one thing, there's the Elizabeth Seaport in New Jersey, and uh, that was established in uh, 18... Oh, wait, oh, I'm sorry, what were you talking about? Uh, I was talking about port wine cheese, actually. Oh, my fault. Huh. Yes, 
Merck's, Merkitz, uh, port wine cheese in the little plastic tub. Oh, gosh, that stuff mm, is good. That's um, good eating. The, uh, surprisingly, Robotron was actually ported fairly widely. It wasn't on the Atari 2600, although supposedly uh, Atari came out, was going to come out with a, a, a computer keyboard add-on for the 2600 called The Graduate. The rumor is that there was a version of Robotron working on The Graduate on the Atari 2600. And supposedly one of the people at, one of the visitors at the Consumer Electronics Show or wherever it was that it was being shown said that it was, quote, the most flickery thing he had ever seen, unquote. So uh. even with a, a computer add-on with more memory, it's still not something I would think you could do. No. It's not something that should even be attempted on the Atari 2600. Yeah, right. Now, that having been said, it was ported fairly widely, not to the consoles, but to the computers of the era. Of course, there's the Atari 7800 version. 5200 had it, the Atari 8-bits, the Commodore and 64. And what was special about those Atari versions? Well, the XE, the Atari 8-bit, and 5200 versions had a controller coupler that you could use to slide two controllers in, so you had one to move and one to fire. Uh, they were different because the XE used, still used the standard Atari 2600. So it was just like a little plastic tray you'd set the controllers in. And I suppose it worked really well. I never used it. I think there was a prototype one for the 7800, too. There is a prototype one for the 7800 that I guess one or two people on Atari age have. And supposedly, and I've not seen the thread in a while, but supposedly I believe somebody actually has a 3D printed, uh, not a 3D printed, but a, a file... For, uh, to use in a 3D printer to print one out for yourself. So there's that. But, I mean, you could use whatever method to use two controllers on it. You a board with a couple of C-clamps or, or you know, get a, a, a controller from Ed Ladin. <clears throat> it's worth mentioning that controller, though, the uh, Super Twin 78. It is a double joystick specifically made with Robotron for the 7800 in mind. It plugs into both joystick ports. I think Phil the No Swear Gamer said that he was able to more than double his high score in the 7800 nice. Robotron because of that. Um, as for me, what I did um, was I tried it out with the Ed Ladin Supreme 78 joystick along with my Uber Arcade at the same time. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. They're both big enough that you can put them down on a surface. Oh, which, uh, if I might interject real quickly here, at the uh, Video Game Summit, I finally got to try those controllers out, and they were both worth every penny you spent for them. You mean every penny the bank spent for them? I, I, yeah. Uh, well, potato, well, that's potato. neither here nor there. <laughs> Who said I actually use my own money for that? <laughs> but, it's the American way. And hey, how about uh, what? How about that game that they made for the Atari, um, the Atari ST, and the Amiga? Well, before we get to that, there were other ports to the computers of the day. Uh, there was, a, and, I, and I actually went through and emulated most of these and played most of these. Um, the uh, Commodore 64, the Apple II, there was an official Robotron version for the Atari ST. Uh, there was also for the Atari Lynx, which I forgot about, uh, oh. the PC, and the VIC-20. Now, I didn't play the Lynx, PC, or VIC-20 versions. I did play all the rest of them through the miracle of emulation. And um, the best version out of all of, all of the ports from back then is the Atari 7800 version, hands down. I was surprised at how mediocre the Atari ST version was, because that's the most really? powerful out of all of those computers that were listed there. That's the most powerful machine out of that whole list. I was really surprised how mediocre it was. I didn't care for the 
the C64, the Atari 5200, or the Atari XE versions because they were just way too choppy. They were, they were either way too choppy or the characters just did not look right. It just, to be fair, I can't judge the gameplay so much because I didn't have two controllers to use with the XE version. And let's face it, the Atari 8-bit computer versions of games and the Atari 5200 versions of games are basically the same. The only difference is the controller for the most part. They're basically the same code. And I have to say, surprisingly, my second most favorite version of Robotron on any of the classic systems is the Apple II version. I emulated that, and I played it uh, on my Raspberry Pi uh, with a controller, and I have to say it moved smooth. Even though the Apple II wasn't really known for its use of color, you could tell what was what. The sounds were mediocre, but where it really shown was the gameplay. It was not choppy. It moved at a fairly decent clip, not like the 7800. And the Apple II couldn't handle the transition between the, the different levels, but the compromise they made was, I thought, really, really nice. And surprisingly, I really love the Apple II version of Robotron. Figure that one out. It's decent for what it is. It really is. I was showing you that at yeah. the uh, video game summit. Indeed. You, you didn't play it, though, did you? I didn't play it, no. Okay. You're going to have to play that. It's really good. There is a knockoff made by, was it Jeff Minter? I don't remember. Is that the guy he huh. was like big into? The, it's the same guy that did uh, Tempest 2000 on the Jaguar and a PC and all that. It's, the game is called Lamatron. It's basically Robotron, except instead of saving humans, you're uh, picking up beasties like camels and llamas and stuff like that. And you're fighting, like, weird things, like eventually there'll be, like, a toilet that's shooting toilet paper out at you, or a gigantic chicken. Uh, sometimes there's a ten-ton weight at the top of the screen that will drop on top of you. Uh, you can pick up power-ups, and uh, it's really, really fun. And it's actually a really good Robotron clone, too. It, it is. Uh, and you were incorrect, well, incorrect by omission on one thing. Oh. Uh, you said it was Atari ST and Amiga. There was also a PC version of it. Oh, really? Yes. Now, I was playing the Atari ST version, and knowing Jeff Minter and the quality of the stuff that he did, I would imagine the quality was the same on all the platforms. Because Jeff Minter, love him or hate him, he never really half-assed stuff. Hey, I liked the Amiga version very much. Yeah, it, that is really fun. The Lamatron, I think, only has 100 screens. After 100, the, the game actually ends. You give, like, three continues, but there's a whole boatload of power-ups and... Uh, it is a fresh version. Yeah, I don't know about the other versions, but the Amiga version gives you an option to have a droid with you. Yes, the Atari ST version does too. Yeah, and it gives I, you so a, I, an R2-D2 looking thing. Yes, and uh, I remember you had mentioned that when we were talking about it before, and uh, I had to go back and double-check that. I actually double-checked yeah. something. Oh, dude, I'm having Hyde go through all of our past episodes and find all the times you oh, said no. you had to double-check something, we're going to do a special show in which you actually double-check everything. Yes, you've threatened that. No, I didn't. I promised that. Case in point, the line between that is razor-thin, and you have just witnessed it being shaved even thinner. But anyway, um, we should have a drinking game. Every time I say, at any rate, you take a drink. Lamatron, check it out. One thing I did want to mention is, um, on any of the ports, if you're playing only with one joystick... For the most part, the direction that you're, you you fire the direction you're facing. You hold the button, it, it fires that direction. Although, they did make some different control schemes for some of the different ports. Uh, I recall the Atari, 
or not the Atari, the Apple II version, but I think that might have just been the way I had it set up, would like, you would hold the button, and it would, it fired the direction you were facing, but it would hold the direction you were firing when you pushed the button. So, like, if you were facing to the left, and you pushed the button, and you were firing, it would, it would fire to the left, but if you held the button in, moved up and down, it would still fire to the left. And I believe there were some weird compromises on the Atari Lynx version, which I did not look up. Uh, I do recall that. I wanted to get that when I owned a Lynx. So Lynx, the Lynx, the Atari Lynx was an awesome handheld system. It blew the Game Boy away in everything, including battery life, which when I say blew it away, I mean it had a hell of a lot less. And size, which when I say blew it away, I mean it was a hell of a lot bigger. But the graphics and full color stereo sound, it was an amazing machine, which I understand was developed on the... Commodore Amiga originally, but then they did release a development kit for the Atari ST. But I digress. One thing I don't remember you saying, what is the purpose of the 2084 in the title? I don't know, to be honest with you. So you did research and you didn't find that basic fact? No, I didn't. Doe. It's a year. I imagine it has something to do with George Orwell's 1984. Well, it it does in a, in a way... way. But uh, they're they're like, you know what, let's make it further in the future because this is what we think Big Brother is going to be like, but we don't think it's going to be 1984. It's going to be further in the future than that. So the only other thing we really talk about with Robotron, other than high scores and sequels, there was one sequel. Well, there were, there were two sequels in the arcade. Well, they, I guess they were both spiritual sequels of a sense. First of all, there was Blaster. And the only reason that's a sequel, even though the gameplay is totally different, it's a uh, through-the-windshield, I guess, first-person space shooter. Got to play that on Saturday. That's a fun game. I really like it. They just got that at Galloping Ghost not too long ago. I remember playing that one way, way, way back in the Ferg, but we'll talk about that soon enough. And um, the only reason that's a sequel, even though the game is totally different, is because it's a continuing of the story. Uh, you know, I'm not going to divulge anything more on that because we're going to cover Blaster, I don't think, before too much longer. And then okay, there was a spiritual sequel, another spiritual sequel, called Smash TV. Oh, I asked either Eugene Jarvis or Larry DeMar about that, and wh- whichever one, I don't remember who, whom I asked about that. They're like, no, that is not a sequel. to. No, it's not a sequel, but I would say it's a spiritual sequel because it's basically the same game. It is. Uh, albeit yeah. with power-ups. And, and two money. players at the same time. Power-ups and money that you keep putting in and in and in. I think that was the I think Smash TV was the first game I ever just kept continuing until all, all the way till the end of it. I think I spent 20 bucks the first time I ever played it. Yeah. I didn't complain back then, but you know, anyway, there were two sequels, spiritual sequels, but you know, there apparently from what I was reading, there were there was actually a closer sequel in development, but not much is known about it. Uh, because it was canceled because of the great video game crash of 1980, whatever, two, three, four. So, uh, yeah, some say 1983, some say 1984. The arcade crash happened at a different time than the whole. I crash. guess if you're talking about spiritual sequels, this isn't really so much a sequel, but I do believe in some places where they have the tie dye ROM set for Robotron, yes. the marquee actually says something like uh, Robotron t- 2015 2084 or something. Ah. Interesting. Or, 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 or no, it says Robo 2K15 2084 or something. And I think it actually says like the tie-dye edition or something on the Well, marquee. when we get to Galloping Ghost, I believe they have the tie-dye ROM set. We'll have to check that out. You know what? And we've said before about there are some games that we just go to 
when we go to the arcade that we we always play whether you know we we, we never really get tired of them i believe i said the uh, gyrus Zevius, and robotron is another one i always make a beeline right for the robotron machine well not a beeline but i make sure i get to it you know when i get to the arcade cuz it's just it's just one of my favorites it's i think it's one of the more addicting games in the arcade you know i remember playing it i mean this was like i believe the second or third biggest seller that Williams ever had. They produced around the neighborhood of 19,000 cabinets. So this game was in pretty much every arcade. Uh, I don't know if I've ever seen it like in one-off locations. I think maybe I have now that I think about it. But it was mostly in the arcades. And I remember playing it at Putt-Putt. I remember playing it at that game place at the at Jefferson the long, Square. Well, long lamented Jefferson Square Mall. I lamented it when arc- it was still around. I hated that mall. I well, the mall, yeah, but I liked that arcade. I knew the guy that uh, that ran the place. And then uh, I played it at Aladdin's Castle, of course. And uh, you played it everywhere. It was everywhere. It was another one of yeah. those ubiquitous games. I'm sure I first played it at the Aladdin's Castle and Lincoln Mall. But the specific memory I have, and I think I mentioned this on an earlier episode, did it have to do with some butthole? No, actually, it was there was very unbutthole to begin with, but you might remember that Sears stores would sometimes have arcades. Yes, mm-hmm. and the Sears in Meadowview Shopping Center in Kankakee actually did have a small arcade. You walk in, it was like two rows, one on each side. Uh huh. It had a surprisingly decent number of games, so I was like, "Oh wow, they have an arcade!" And of course, you know, my mother would never let me play. So <laughs> I just loved that it was there. And I remember sometime later, my mom said to me, you know, they had to close that game room at Sears. I said, what are you talking about? She said, yeah, they closed it. There's a sign outside of where it used to be saying they had to close it because some kid got brain damage there. Oh, God. I know. Yeah, your mom was making that up. You you know how I know she was making it up? How? Close to a year later, I was at that store and the arcade was there There. and still functioning. Now, I know the the Louis Joliet Mall Sears actually had a a tiny arcade for a while. But, but I had never been in there when it was open. There was one time I actually slipped into that arcade just to check it out. Uh-huh. The Robotron machine was in was on free play mode. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I was sitting, I was standing there playing Robotron for a little while. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a fun game. I love this game. But you know what? We didn't talk about high scores. Ah, uh, damn it. Who cares about high scores? All right, fine. Um, let's I see. I couldn't tell you what mine is. Okay, Twin Galaxies says, uh, well, at least for five lives, difficulty level five. Uh, John P. McAllister, verified December 27, 2009, scored 1,236,950. And there's another track called the Vid Kids Extreme Endurance Marathon, in which the dip switches are set for a bonus at 50,000 points, three lives, difficulty level set to 10. Verified June 2nd, 2015, David Gomez scored 1,430,425. If we flip over to the more casual site of Orcade.com, assuming the dip switches are set for extra life every 25,000 points, difficulty 5, 3 lives. January 4th, 2014, during MAGFest 12, that is Music and Games Fest, at the Gaylord National (laughs) Convention Center in National Harbor, Maryland. Dane Tullock. Tulak. I don't know how it's pronounced. Sorry, Dane. Maybe it's Donne. I don't know. Uh, 33,341,475. There's another track listed on Orcade.com where it simply says five lives. Matt Hall, 
did that on March 25th, 2012 at the Ken Cade during the Battle of the Arcades. He scored 875,850. As for me, on that same Five Lives track, 38,225. Beat that, bub. <laughs> I couldn't tell you what my high score is. I should really track more of my scores on yeah. Arcade. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention uh, about the ports. There's something interesting on the Atari 7800 version. I thought we had talked about it, but thinking of which we actually mentioned it on the episode of Super Podcast Brothers that we run. It's the only version of a game on the 7800 that has a difficulty level of challenge. It's got the novice, it's got the medium, it's got the hard, it's got the difficult, and it's got a challenge mode. And if I'm not mistaken, the challenge mode on the Atari 7800 version of Robotron puts the game at its maximum difficulty... No free lives, and you only get one life. That is fun to play. <laughs> that is a fun one to play, especially if you got a group of people trying to one-up each other. So, that's a little hint from me to you. The more you know. Oh god, we have to drop that in, don't we? Yeah. So, with that, uh, are we ready to talk about... Uh, we are not ready to talk about Defender yet. You know why? Why don't we uh, rate the game... Oh, yeah, let's rate the game. <laughs> yeah. This is easy. It's a five. Five. Wow. We agreed, and we gave All right, it both a five. Game. All right, next game. Oh, it, it is worth mentioning that Robotron 2084 came out in 1982. Yeah, not 84. Okay, next game. Next game. Ah, uh, Defender. Uh, Defender, February 1981 by Williams, blah, 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 blah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Eugene Jarvis, Larry DeMar, blah, 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 blah. I have a cool Defender story, but anyway, go on. So yeah, the, uh, Defender got a ship, and the object is to protect the humanoids again. It's kind of a theme here, isn't it? Oh, don't give away the theme. Uh. That wasn't actually the theme I was thinking of. I had something else entire. Oh, holy cow! Can we edit that out? Anyway, you're you're trying to save the humanoids from being turned into mutants by the aliens. So what happens is first. Wait of a minute! All, isn't that what Robotron is pretty much? Uh, 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 it is. Uh, first of all, we got to talk about the control panel. There's only one arcade game I can think of that had, of the classic era, I'm not talking about like computer space or anything like that, but of the classic era that had a more difficult control panel than Defender. Now, Defender, first of all, you can move your ship in four directions, up, down, left, right. However, sort of, you don't have a four-way joystick. You have a joystick that moves up and down. Right next to this joystick, which is on the left side of the control panel, you have a button that's called Reverse. And it doesn't just immediately turn you around. It turns you around and drifts the screen. So you got to watch out that you don't accidentally but drift. But watch out for snakes? Watch out for snakes. So you might accidentally drift into an enemy. Now, you can only move up and down with the joystick. How do you move forward? You might be asking. You're not asking. Well, I did you say said you I might, might be, be asking. asking. Yeah, you might be. You're not, but it might be. Well... You have a thrust button. That is on the right-hand side of the control panel. On the right-hand side, not only do you have the thrust button, but you have a smart bomb button, of which you start out with three. You start out with three lives, too, by the way. And you have your main fire button. Right smack in the middle of the control panel is a button called hyperspace. Oh, and I actually have a story <laughs> story about the hyperspace button in Defender. So that is, let's count it up. we got a joystick, but for buttons we have the reverse, hyperspace, thrust, Fire, smart bomb. Five individual buttons. Oh, don't forget the start button. Well, I don't count these start buttons, because those generally don't 
do any function. You can't play the game without the start button. Listen, mister. I can do whatever the hell I want. I want you to play a game of Defender without hitting a start button. Just because I want to do it doesn't mean I'm going to do it. Gotcha. So, now, for, uh, first of all, on the top of the screen, you have a scanner which shows you shows you the whole planet and where, well, maybe I don't think it does show you the whole thing. I think it shows you like three quarters of the planet and where, you know, any enemies would be, you know, in this scanner. So, you know, what's you can pretty much keep an eye of what's going on. I believe Defender was the first game to actually have a scanner like that sort of thing. I believe it is. Yeah, I believe so. I do believe the very first issue of Joystick Magazine, there's a write-up of Defender in which it actually also says that. And didn't they talk to Eugene Jarvis about the creation of that? I want to think I saw a... uh, I guess I I saw an interview with him about that somewhere. Yeah, an interview. Not an interview, an interview. interview. So they, like, crawled into his head? Yeah. So, anyway, yeah, you're protecting the humanoids, and you got, like, kind of this uh, mountain landscape you're flying against. Unlike... Other games where you see like a, a landscape, uh, you you don't crash into the landscape in this game, which is a good thing. I believe you mentioned previously in the episode we talked about scramble. I brought that up, and you said you might be flying in front of the landscape, which is a fair point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, where the humanoids get deposited on the screen kind of blows a hole in that theory. But at any rate, you got many different kinds of enemies, and here's what they are. First of all, you've got baiters, and um, they're masters at their job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I see what you did there. Yes. Uh, they basically look like just like a green little thin UFO. They pretty much track you. They they have the same function as the pterodactyl in uh, Joust does, just to kind of keep things moving along. They're worth 200 points. Uh, then you got bombers. They just look like a kind of a couple of little squares that are together. They just leave mines on the screen. They're pretty dumb enemies, but just because they're dumb don't mean you ain't going to crash into them. Uh, those are 250 points. Now, you've got pods. Pods look like, I don't know, kind of like a reddish-brown asterisk. They're worth a 1,000 points for each one you shoot. The problem is that when you shoot one, it leaves, uh, I believe, three or four swarmers. Swarmers are worth 150 points each. Uh, swarmers are little, they look like little brown dots. They pretty much gang up on your ship. They head right for your ship and gang up on you. So you pretty much got to shoot those up. Now, the most important enemy in the game. There's still two enemies left, but the most important is the lander. It's worth 150 points. It's a green creature. It looks like kind of a little mini Cthulhu. Baby Cthulhu, if you will. And uh, their object is they shoot at you. Everything pretty much shoots at you in this game, with the exception of the swarmers, although they might too. It's been a while since I've actually seen that. I, I did, did I play it at Ghost last time I was there? I want to think I did, and I did score more than 4,000 points. But uh, they kidnap your humans. What the landers are trying to do is to kidnap your humans. They'll go down to the landscape. They'll see a human walking around. A humanoid looks like kind of like a, a pink rectangle. Kind of weird shape. Picks up the humanoid, tries to take it to the top of the screen. If it takes, it gets it to the top of the screen, the humanoid merges with the little baby Cthulhu and turns them into a mutant. Mutants are also 150 points. The mutants, again, they pretty much go for a straight line to your ship. Now, what can you do about the humanoids once a lander has one? Well, you can shoot the lander, and what will happen at that point is that the humanoid will start falling. 
first of all, you can accidentally or on purpose shoot your humanoids. I actually have shot them all on purpose just for no other reason than to be an ass. What happens then? Because I always wondered, I never tried that, but I always wondered because then you have no nobody to defend. Well, here, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, I'm going to explain a couple of more things here. Please do. If you shoot a mutant as it's pulling up a humanoid, the humanoid will fall. If it's within about an inch of the ground, it will survive the fall. Any higher up, the humanoid hits the ground and it dies. Well, first of all, if you shoot it and the humanoid falls and you can fly your ship into the humanoid, you catch it and you save it and you get 500 points. Then if you fly down toward the ground and drop the humanoid off, you get another 500 points. So it's worth your while. Every once in a while, I find myself in a situation where I shoot a lander uh, the humanoid will fall. I'll be hovering like right above the gr- <laughs> right above the ground, and I will pick it up and land it at the same time, netting me a thousand points without actually any extra effort. But uh, there you go. Now you were asking, what happens if there are no more humanoids left? The planet blows up, and all of the landers turn into mutants. The thing is, they turn into mutants because they mutate with the humanoids. What do they mutate with if there are no humanoids with which to mutate? Well, they probably grab those humanoids from other planets. You have to play what they call the... the what did they call it? There was an official name for this. Uh, the Hokey Pokey? You know, I was going to do the Hokey Pokey, but... But I you turned, turned yourself around. around. Yeah. Yeah, we knew where that was going. Uh, I, I don't know. It's a game. I don't think about these things. What happens then is you have to play these mutant levels until every fifth level. So if you lose all of your humanoids, say, on level one, level one turns into a mutant level, and then every level thereafter is a mutant level until level five, which you get all your humanoids back. So there's that. That's what happens. And the mutants are really kind of hard to destroy just because of the, their, uh, their movement patterns. Unlike Robotron, this game is kind of sparse on the sound, but what it does, it does well. Uh, visually speaking, it's still kind of sparse, but it, you know, the graphics get the job done. Although I have to say, the explosion of your ship uh, kind of reminds me of uh, the explosions as we were talking about in Robbie Roto in the in the previous episode. Uh, it's it's quite a beautiful sight to behold. It is I just a say. shame that you have to lose a life to see it. Yeah, I know. It it, it, it is an amazing an amazing effect, and uh, I I I dig it. This is a hard-ass game. If it wasn't... You know what? If they replaced the joystick with a full four-way joystick and got rid of the thrust and the the reverse button, I think this game would be very easy. You'd see a lot of people beating it. This game, really, for the challenge, needs that control panel. Now, there were a couple of sequels to this game. Couple? Yeah, there were two. Well, one and a spiritual sequel. Uh, uh, yes, the official sequel is called Stargate. Yes, basically the same game. Uh, they added an extra weapon, extra enemies, which <laughs> were named after uh, <laughs> a couple of the enemies were named after the names of competing uh, video game companies. Only their names were anagrammed. The Yulabian Space Guppies, Yulabi, Bally, and let me see. There was a an enemy called the Errata, Atari. Uh, that was actually backwards. And then they had little creatures called the Freds and the Big Reds. Uh, Freds, Big Reds, Munchies. And they, they just added a whole lot more into it. Then they added a whole thing of a Stargate, which 
I, you know what? I don't know if we're going to ever talk about Stargate, and there's so there's not that much different to I think warrants its own episode. I think Stargate is noticeably easier. Well, the, the one thing Stargate has is if you catch five humanoids, and there is a Stargate in the thing. First of all, if you go into a Stargate and you have less than five, and you're carrying less than five humanoids, it'll just warp you to the opposite side of the planet. But if you have five humanoids, it will warp you. I think five levels, five or ten levels into the game. So you got that going for you. Uh, there are special waves in uh, in Stargate, like there's the uh, the Space Guppy wave, which that's all that are in that level are the Space Guppies, that sort of thing. Uh, there was a really good version of Stargate for the Atari 2600. Oh, I'm sorry, I mean Defender 2. But uh, I think that's all I'm going to say about Stargate. Uh, get, uh, I get hate the Atari, the Atari 2600 Stargate. I like it. It it looks almost exactly like the arcade. It does, is, but I hate the control scheme. I mean, I know well, that they, they had, had to, to do, do what they had yeah. to do, but it would be nice if they would have programmed it for the video touchpad that yeah. the uh, oh, yeah. that the that Star Raiders used, which I did, that was the only game that used that, so I don't know. But anyway, uh, but we're talking about Defender. I can dig it. <laughs> now you you get a new uh, ship, a new smart bomb for every ten thousand points uh, that you get. Again, all of this stuff was, uh, you know, changeable by the by the uh, arcade owner. Uh, something I thought was interesting is uh, the first time I had bought a uh, compilation of different uh, arcade games. It was a Williams compilation. It was real early in the '90s, and it had Joust and Robotron, Defender, Stargate, Bubbles, all of those. And Defender, with with with, with all of the other games, with with Stargate, Robotron, all of those. You have a service mode. You go, and it's an actual menu. It says, you know, how many credits per game, how many lives, you know, what scoring, whatever. They actually had to have an insert in the packaging to describe what uh, the settings in Defender did because it didn't have, you know, words saying extra life at however many points. It just said something something like uh, setting one, and then you would set a value. Setting two, and and the manual actually had to tell you what each of the settings were. So I thought that was uh, that was quite interesting. This game was why it, this was pretty much ported to everything. It was actually probably ported. I, I didn't think this at first, but when I was looking at it, I think this game was ported more than Frogger was. Really? And Frogger was ported to everything, and there's a reason why. Except 7800. That's true. Well, this wasn't ported to the 7800, nor was Frogger. There's a homebrew there, version in the there's works, There's a homebrew, but it's we're, we're, I'm talking official ports. Now, it was on the Atari 2600, the Atari 5200, and the 8-bits. It was on the Intellivision, the ColecoVision, the Commodore 64, the VIC-20, the Apple II, the TI-99-4A, PC. Yeah, I am including computer versions here. The Entex Adventure Vision, of which there were only four games for that little portable system. And then later, I, I guess I would consider these later in the classic era, maybe then the neo classic era, uh, the Game Boy and the Game Boy Color. Look for a video of the Entex Adventure Vision. I didn't um, hear you mention the Acorn Archimedes. I didn't see that in my research. Ah, shucks. Now you were saying there was a homebrew of De- of Defender. No, you're saying a Frogger uh, for the seventy eight hundred. Uh, oh there yeah, are... there, there's one. There's one for the seventy eight hundred that's. For all I can tell, looks very, very finished, but it's been sitting un- unreleased for years. Gotcha. There are three other uh, homers that I do know of. There's one for the BBC Micro. Uh, it was originally called Defender, but they had to change the name. Uh, there is a homebrew for the Vectrex, and 
somebody hacked Stargate slash Defender 2 for the Atari 2600 and took out all of the Stargate elements just to create a Defender clone. Hmm. Which that's interesting because they. Oh, I was talking about Frogger, by the way. There's ah. Bob DiCrescenzo started a Defender homebrew for 7800, but he hasn't finished it. I don't know if there's a yet in there or if he just abandoned it. Come on, Bob. <laughs> I don't want to pressure him. He's a great guy. Uh, as witnessed by one of our previous episodes, Scramble Frenzy. So this was pretty much just on just about everything back then. I, w- I want to think Frogger still maybe has the edge because it was on the Odyssey 2. I'm sure Frogger, it does. Frogger wasn't on the Entex Adventure Vision. Frogger so, was on the uh, Tommy Tudor computer. Yeah, it was. I, you know what? I think Frogger still has the edge. Yeah. But I think it only has a one or two game edge over this. I have to, you know what? I'm going to compare the lists at some point in my life, possibly before I die on that. But it was a very widely ported game. Uh, there was one official sequel, as we talked about, Stargate. And there was a spiritual sequel called Strike Force. I haven't played Strike Force in the arcade. Now, I know they have it at Galloping Ghost. I've seen it. I've walked by it. And there's a reason I've walked by it. And that's because I've played Strike Force in MAME, and I just do not like Strike Force at all. Uh, <laughs> oh, did you mention the Entex Arcade Defender handheld? No, I didn't know they had a handheld. Oh, I knew yeah. they had it on the Adventure Vision, but I did not know they had a handheld. Oh, yeah, there's a handheld. Um, it has it has your up, down, reverse buttons. It has thrust fire and um, smart bomb button and uh, and a hyperspace button. And it's got every And it's got a game speed control, too. Oh, fascinating. It's an LED handheld. In fact, I think there's a write-up on that in the first issue of Joystick, too. Seriously, go to archive.org, guys, if you haven't. Uh, they've got all of the issues of Joystick online. And, and go in there for some good retro video game reading. There's some good, good stuff. J-O-Y-S-T-I-K. Yes. With all the different ports, they had to make different... Uh, I, obviously, computers, you know, you could have, you have all the buttons you need. The ColecoVision, the Atari 5200, and television versions, you have all the buttons you need for the game. The Atari 2600 version, uh, not the uh, Defender Arcade hack, but the original one, they had to make a couple of... Um, Snossages. Snossages. They had to make a couple of... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Florsal Corp? Yeah, a couple of Florsal Corps uh, for the game to uh, to get all the controls in. Uh, they, they hadn't considered at that point using another controller or whatever but then again it could just be also the thing where they were told they had to get it in under a certain size you know because uh, back then they were always like gotta get it in 4k gotta get it in 8k or whatever uh they didn't want larger games than that yeah, so, and i feel that the, the, the 2600 defender gets too much flack it does i think I, it's a great conversion it's enjoyable and quite honestly well first of all the uh constellations that they had to make with the uh, with the control scheme to use the smart bomb, you actually had... First of all, they didn't have mountains. They had uh, a City. little cityscape in the uh, at the bottom of the screen, which I thought was quite uh, nice, actually. I oh, thought yeah. that was a nice effect. Uh, to use your smart bomb, you had to make your ship sink below the city skyline. And uh, once you're behind the skyline of the city, you press the button to activate the smart bomb. To activate the hyperspace, you had to go all the way to the top of the screen, hide behind the radar... Which, that was also an achievement for the 2600, having that little radar feature, and it worked quite well for what it did. But anyway, to use the hyperspace, you had to go behind the radar and hit the button to do the hyperspace. Uh, thing with hyperspacing in games, as we've talked about in our various Asteroids episodes, there's no rhyme or reason to where it's going to put you. It'll put you 
most often like right in harm's way. So, you know, be aware of that. Hyperspace is very rarely your friend and should only be used in extreme emergencies. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, but all things considered, I like the 2600 version. Is it the best arcade conversion on it on the system? No. not I would say not by a long shot, but it's a damn good game. It's fun in its own right. And if you don't like it, there are other kind of Defender-type clones on there. My uh, my favorite Defender clone on the 2600 is Chopper Command, which hmm. is an Activision title. Yeah. I actually uh, can't say rolled over. I actually got to the end of Chopper Command, which is a million points once. Wow. And I was I was in a groove. Now, one thing I do need to say about the Atari 2600 version, uh, there is an Easter egg in it. Do tell. What you have to do, you have to get to the 25th level, which is not a hard task on the easier game selection. So that's one thing I love about Atari 2600 games is they have multiple difficulty levels. And I know they have them on the ColecoVision and the other ones, but the ColecoVision pretty much limited you to four. I couldn't tell you about Intellivision. Oh, uh, something else that was cool about the 2600 version. I had this rapid, I still have this in my possession somewhere, but there was a rapid fire adapter. You plug your joystick in and then you plug the adapter into the console and, and it that would fire thing, rabbits? It, it would fire rapids. So the, these big waterfalls would go. Oh, actually, oh. no, no, no. Um, what it would do is it rabbits. would auto fire for you. It was, what it, you hold down the butt, the fire button, auto fire. And that worked really well with Defender. You know, it just occurs to me, and I'm going to get back to the uh, Easter egg in this moment here, but it just occurred to me that I have on my Sega Master System here, uh, they made a rapid fire adapter. It's an official Sega branded product for the Sega Master System controller. Where you can, it's got two switches on it, one for each button. You can turn rapid fire on or off. The Sega Master System controllers are a same nine-pin controller as the Atari Twenty Six Hundred joysticks, and I wonder if I can use that on the Twenty Six Hundred or Seventy Eight Hundred for that matter. I'm gonna have to dig that out and try that. I mean, dig out my Seventy Eight Hundred and try that. Holy cow! Moo. Anyway, uh, back to the Easter egg. You have to get to the twenty-fifth level. You have to rescue a humanoid uh, after a, a lander is picking it up. Oh, and by the way, uh, one other thing, cool thing about the uh, 2600 version, I love that animation of them kidnapping the human. In the arcade, they, it just goes down, touches the human, carries it off. In the 2600, the, uh, the lander goes down to the level of the, uh, level of the city, and then it sends out a tractor beam. And pulls the human up. That is pretty cool. I love that. And anybody, even, I bet the people that even even the people that hate the twenty six hundred version of it have got to admit that's pretty slick. But at any rate, twenty fifth level, save a humanoid, and then if you fly on the twenty uh, fifth scan line in the game, all of the enemies turn into the initials of the programmer. Which was it, Bob Polero? Bob Polero. Uh, yeah, so all of the uh, all of the enemies will turn into Bob Polero's initials. Isn't that interesting? Very. Seriously, give twenty six hundred Defender the original a try. I like it. I think it's a. F- I think it's a good port. Great, no, but it's definitely entertaining. You'll get hours and hours of entertainment out of it. So anyway, off my soapbox. So I think with that, what about scores? Yeah, what about them? <laughs> Uh, let's see. Twin Galaxies uh, has a couple of different tracks. Now, I'm not quite sure what the difference is between these two tracks. They're like two different marathon tracks. One just standard marathon track, 
in which they, uh, on January 1st, 1984, verified that Chris Hoffman scored $79,976,975. How? How? How in the hell? How? Last time I played it, I got 4,000, like 500 points or something. There was another track called One Credit Verified Endurance Marathon. And Twin Galaxies puts a note in there. It says that the goal is the highest points with the default settings. Thing is, the same thing, isn't that the same goal as the other marathon? I think what it is, it's basically to make sure that you don't use any bug exploits or something, because there uh-huh. are similar bugs to the Goldilocks bugs from uh, Robotron, apparently. You can really exploit and get some super stupid high points. But uh, for this track, verified May 10th, 2015, Gary Whittingham, or Whittingham maybe, uh, scored 3,751,875. Arcade.com has some different info. Marathon settings at Richie Knuckles, first ever Richie Knuckles Arcade Marathon, December 11, 2010. Eric Liddell scored 5,055,500. Is the Illuminati involved in Oh, never mind. And while we're on Arcade, let's see what it has for this co-host of Pie Factory Podcast. Arcade has me at, ha, 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 ha. Watch out, everybody. My score, my highest score registered, 16,600. Damn! You're much better at most games than I am, although I'm still better than you at Gyrus, so I've got that going for me. But then again, everybody's better than than me at Gyrus. But I don't have any world records on anything. Not in the arcade, anyway. The only reason I have the (laughs) one world record on an arcade game is because nobody else submitted. Believe me, there are people who could easily, like, double my junior pac-man turbo score well don't you have the ms pac-man high world record nope no nope what happened with that Did- i have the house high record at retrocade retrocade ah uh, i thought you had the world record no uh-huh there are people who have exceeded my score by a couple hundred thousand points oh i did not know that well you got one which is more than i've got uh you're gonna have a couple of uh, home video game records coming up soon maybe we, nothing's official. We can't say anything at this point, but oh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll say it. We'll say something later. We'll, but, we'll uh, say all we can say is watch this space or listen to this silence. But uh, a couple of other things worth mentioning about Defender. Defender is represented on the Buckner and Garcia Pac-Man Fever album. Mm-hmm. There is a song on there called Defender. And there's also a song called Hyperspace, but uh, last time I listened to it, I paid close attention to it. I think it was more Asteroids than anything else. Yeah, I I wouldn't think that they would have doubled up on songs on the album. Nah, nah. But there was a rather amusing story that uh, that I read here. In uh, Chicago, in Rogers Park, which is the northernmost neighborhood by the lake, uh, it's the next neighborhood north of where I live, uh, there used to be an arcade called Silver Sue's. It started out as a pinball arcade and then gradually turned into a video game arcade. It was almost like a dive bar kind of arcade, but it was pretty popular, actually. Uh, it was located uh, near the corner of Farwell and Clark Street. Clark Street is a pretty major street in town, but uh, it was run by, I believe her name was Susan London, I think. Um, I might be wrong about that. I'll have to double check. And unlike some people, I Uh-oh. really will double check. You know what? I'm going to double check right now. Susan England. 
And Eugene Jarvis and Larry DeMar were frequent customers there. They would go there all the time and play games. And Susan was telling a story. This I think this is an article in Joystick where I read this. But uh-huh. she almost had to kick Eugene Jarvis out because he would lose his temper when playing Defender. He would <laughs> slam the uh, he'd slam the panel so hard that he'd almost push the, the machine through the wall. Thinking about that. On the Pie Factory Facebook page, yes. we have a picture of Eugene Jarvis losing his last life on Defender, and uh, we, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll bring that up to the forefront of the page again. Somehow, yeah, we'll, we we'll throw it somewhere in a photo album too for those of you yes. who are Facebook phobic. Yeah, I love he has kind of a WTF look in his face. I know. Too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> apparently he used to score really high on the game too. Anyway, do you have any? Do you, is there anything else you would like to uh, contribute to the discussion of the Defender uh, video game? Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, no. Oh. <laughs> okay. Next uh, game. What's the, next? Is, oh, that was our next game. Oh, we should probably rate this. We should probably rate this. Defender is. Uh, it's more sparse on the audio visuals than Robotron, but it came before Robotron, so I mean, it's to be expected. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's still not unpleasing in those departments, though. Uh, as I said, you know, what it does, it does well, and it, it gets the job done. The difficulty in this game, I think, mostly comes from the control scheme, although that's not to say the game itself isn't hard. I don't go to this game frequently just because of its difficulty, but I still like the game a lot. So, you know, I'm going to give it a four. I'm going to give it a four, too. I would love to give it a five, but the truth is it is too damn hard. Yeah, it, really it is. is insanely hard. I mean, yeah, I see. And f- Oh, here's something else. If I remember correctly, I believe Defender is the reason that Twin Galaxies ever existed. Oh? Well, the score table, at least. I mean, Because what happened was, if I remember my story correctly, uh, Walter Day, if you're listening to this, please correct us if we're wrong. But... If I remember correctly, somebody was playing Defender at the Twin Galaxies Arcade in Otumwa, Iowa, and got a really super-duper high score and talked to Walter Day, who was the proprietor, and said, hey, what's the highest score anybody's ever got on this? And he said, you know what? I don't know. So he called up Williams and asked if uh, they knew, and they said, well, we don't really keep any records. And so Walter Day took it upon himself to start keeping high-score records. Again, we need to reach out to him again and get the full story because that's another—that's a story I want to hear. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, yeah, let's. Yeah, it would be great if we could get him on the show, but uh, but hey, um, people are busy. He, that's the reality. He, he's always. I thought he retired. He's busier now that he retired. You know, because he's he's Eugene everywhere. Jarvis and Larry Demar are are busy too. We've tried getting them on the show unsuccessfully but they're still they're still busy they're still working they're still oh, doing yeah. things yeah they are they are eugene definitely jarvis busy. has still got a very successful arcade video game company that he work does and larry demar's got a, a very successful um gambling uh machine company i guess oh, i thought you were gonna say he was a very with. successful encyclopedia salesman he they were two they were very, two okay very unsuccessful successful encyclopedia salesman uh-huh let this be a lesson to us all. Do you remember the, where you first played or saw Defender? No, I don't. But that brings me to my story. Oh. Yeah, I wasn't a very well-liked kid in school. Uh, I was the one that all of the uh, burnouts and uh, jocks uh, took out their inadequacies on because I never fought back. Well, one day during, again, final exams, and again, nabbies, 
in Plainfield, uh, I was playing the Defender Machine. I had played it before then, and uh, I used to actually be okay at it. But uh, I was playing, and then one kid who picked on me all the time came up to me, and the way that the control panel is laid out, you got your hand on the joystick on one side, and then you got your, your hand on the buttons on the right-hand side, which means the hyperspace button is right in the middle. To, to do anything with that, you have to move your hand over and slap the button, then move it back to get it into position to play. This kid who picked on me all the time came up to me while I was playing Defender, and he started hitting, reaching over and hitting the hyperspace button on me, trying to make me lose my game. The irony is it actually helped my score. So <laughs> <laughs> I love Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is a good thing. All I can say is I know I first played this at the, at the Aladdin's Castle at Lincoln Mall. It wasn't a monumental moment for me. My game didn't last very long, but... I was still happy I played it. I was like, you know what? This is a pretty cool game. And I had already, this is after I had already been very familiar with the 2600 version. Mm-hmm. But I was like, you know, I, I do like the arcade version. So I was, I was pleased yeah. that I wasted, uh, well, I shouldn't say waste. I was pleased that I used uh, one fourth of my allowance on it. There you go. So I think with that, shall we release the theme Hounds? for the episode? Uh, shall we tell everybody what the uh, theme was? Yeah, theme from the TV show Rawhide. Thank you. Theme from a summer place. The theme of today's show, these are games that were created by the Vid Kids. No, Eugene Jarvis weren't. and Larry DeMar. They weren't? No. They were They were, were both created by Larry DeMar and Eugene Jarvis. But they but were both the Vid Kids. Vid Kids didn't exist until after Defender was made. Ah, but they were still created by... Eugene and Larry. They were both created by yes. Eugene and Larry. And, of course, I alluded to a secondary theme. They also deal with protecting humanoids. Yes, they do. And uh, VidKids was the name of the company that Eugene and Larry formed after they left Williams. But I still did a lot of work with Williams. Yeah, Robotron was made by the VidKids team. Yes. That is an official VidKids title. Indeed. That they did for Williams. And I think with that, perhaps maybe we should let our listeners know what we're going to be talking about next time. All right. We are going to be talking about why my armpit itches. Yay. (laughs) Next time we're going to be talking about, does this look like a boil to you? (laughs) No. Uh, We're going to be talking about Omega Race and Tempest. Ooh. And uh, I want to send a thanks to our Patreon sponsors. Rory Coleman, Scott Lambert, Andy Ryerson, Keith Sheehan, Richard Valdez, Greg Polander, Nate Lockhart, and Michael D'Angelo. That Nate, that that list keeps getting longer and longer. Yeah, let's make it really, really long. Let's make it like more than two hundred and fifty-five names. See if we can get it to reset to zero. Now, uh, I don't know if I want it to reset. Before to zero. I forget to mention. Um, oh, but maybe, maybe, maybe if it hits two fifty-five, we'll get unlimited patrons. Ooh, that'd be pretty sweet. Yeah. Oh, we could retire. But <laughs> um, anyway, before I forget to mention this. In the near future, there might come a time when you go to piefactorypodcast.com and it might not work. Try again. I mentioned before, DreamHost sucks. All right? They suck. And not in a good way. Yeah. And um, they are currently hosting piefactorypodcast.com. I am in the middle of transitioning over to a different host. So there might come like a day or two when the site's not there. It will be back. Don't worry. So just... Keep trying. If you want to watch a good Japanese monster movie, Ooh, check out The Host. That's actually a very good monster mm, movie. Mm, anyway, there, there's a thought. Anywho. 
So there you go. We will see you all again in a few weeks. And we're watching you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, a couple of weeks. Talk to you all. Bye-bye. Asta. This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is the Happy L composed by Sean Courtney. Love theme from Adenda and Arata was composed by Jim Goble. Follow the Pie Factory podcast online via Facebook, on Twitter at Pie Factory PFP, or on PieFactoryPodcast.com. Support the show at Patreon.com slash PieFactoryPodcast. We should drop in a Dirty Harry clip there because of the Dirty Harry movie and The Enforcer. Anyway which had starred Tyne Daly in her pre-Cagney and Lacey days. She was actually pretty good looking in this movie. Anyway, uh, now the Enforcers That's three any will... rates in a minute. That's a pretty fast rate. We will see you all again in a few weeks. And... We're watching you. <laughs> I always feel like Sean and Jim are watching me. Oh, God, my allergies making it hard for me to hit high notes that I can't hit anyway. Yeah, because you're good at high notes any other time, aren't you? And the, the other thing that pisses me off is people that put shit in the microwave. They let it go. Seven seconds? Seven se- seconds left. They open the door. Oh, it's done. Close the door. And they don't freaking clear off the timer. Clear off the damn timer. Ugh. Man, I'm on a roll. Anyway.